Well, hello, beautiful people. It is Friday, April 10th. Feel good Friday. Good Friday. Let's make it a great Friday with a show. Easter is on Sunday. Jesus is popping out of a cave. I'm back, bitch. Let's have a good one. Great podcast today. We can't thank you enough for choosing to listen to us. We understand there's a lot of things that can penetrate your ear holes. The fact that you choose to listen to us, we are eternally grateful. I am currently sitting at the office. It is 1030 at night, and Tone Diggs has accomplished 30 miles. 30 miles in the last 10 hours on a treadmill. It is nothing short of impressive. Uh, we'll be live. YouTube.com forward slash The Pat McAfee Show. 10 to noon Eastern Standard Time. Checking on our friend Town Diggs. We got some interviews today that, you know, we don't normally get. Hope you enjoy the hell out of them. Cheers. Joining us now, everything I'm about to say will probably be a first and a last for this show. <laughs> Joining us is a Rhodes Scholar. Joining us is a neurosurgeon. Joining us was a stud at Florida State and played for the Tennessee Titans. A man that went to Oxford while at school at Florida State. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Myron Roll. Doc! Got a boy, Doc! Wow, that was awesome. <laughs> hey, you. Doc, you're awesome. I, before we get into um, you battling coronavirus right now, you're a neurosurgeon, but you've been pivoted into the front lines of the pandemic because of how big it is in Boston. First of all, thank you for your service. I appreciate the hell out of that. Before we get to all that, though, I want to go back to when you were at Florida State. How the hell were you able to be pre-med and play football at a high level? Because I was a communications major, and I'll tell you what. Damn near wasn't eligible for my senior <laughs> ball game. I don't know how. How were you able to balance those two things? It doesn't make any sense. How did you have enough time in the day? You are such an outlier in this world. How did you make it work? Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Um, for me, I think it was finding um, you know, a space where I could really perform in the classroom and uh, on the field. So really creating that space and like advocating for myself. Uh, when I went on my recruiting visits as a high school student, I would tell Bob Stoops at Oklahoma and Bobby Bowden at Florida State and at the time Lloyd Carr at Michigan, like, hey, I want to go pre-med. I want to be a Rhodes Scholar. I want to make sure that I can get these things done while I'm here with you. I can't sign with you unless you give me that commitment. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. So they carved out space for me to go to labs and for me to do these things because they know I took it seriously. Uh, and it was important for me to not only perform well in, on the field, but also to get my degree and do well. And then in the summer times, I did not go home. I got on my boogie. I did 18, 20 credit hours. I was really, really um, going advanced and uh, trying to take the harder classes like organic chemistry and biochemistry in the summer when it was a little bit slower. Slow it down when I got to the fall so I could focus on football and then pick it back up, up again in the spring. And all those things seem to work out to, together. You're making these decisions as an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old. I was getting out $40,000 in, in loans just to party. <laughs> I, I, I didn't even know what a Rhodes Scholar was going. Like I, I, To be honest, until you won it, I don't think I even knew it existed. I was like, a guy playing football just won the Rhodes Scholar? Damn, that must be good, I assume, because I never heard it before. Going... Like in high school, I assume you were just like at the top of the charts for everything and you kind of saw what the opportunity was with that incredible brain of yours and then you just so happened to be this incredibly gifted athlete as well. And who helped you with these decisions and process and maybe shaping your future? Because that seems like an incredibly mature thing to talk about as an 18-year-old. Yeah, certainly. My family, for sure. My parents, my brothers. Uh, we're from the Bahamas and my parents put 
a lot of these role models in front of me, like um, Ben Carson, uh, got me interested in neurosurgery. He's a neurosurgeon from Hopkins, now Secretary of HUD in D.C. Uh, Nelson Mandela and Kofi Annan and Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, they wanted me to see these black figures who look like me, came from similar backgrounds, so I can sort of pursue my academic achievements with, um, with vigor and veracity while still playing the sport that I was passionate about. And I went to high school in Princeton, New Jersey, so I'd walk over to the university and read about a guy named Bill Bradley who won a Rhodes Scholarship, mm. you know, New York Nick and Senator. And I was like, oh man, if I can do what he did as a, a true student athlete, then maybe I can, you know, achieve some other goals and help inspire some people. So he kind of put the idea of Rhodes Scholar in my head and I put that to the metal when I got to Florida State and thankfully it worked out my junior year. What the hell is the Rhodes Scholar? I know it's a big deal. I know it's a very big deal. And I, if our recollection is correct, I believe you were on a plane for something happened where you're on a plane right before a game because you had to take a test at Oxford. Like, so, what is the Rhodes Scholar and how do you apply? How did you, how does, what is it? <laughs> yeah. So the Rose Scholarship is uh, probably the highest academic award you can earn as an undergraduate student. Um, it is, uh, it's awarded to about 32 people every year out of hundreds of thousands of applicants. It's um, very, very tough. It typically does not go to a jock. Uh, Bill Bradley was probably the last major one to win it. Um, Pat Hayden, quarterback uh, at USC, he won one as well. Huh. Uh, and then you have people like Bill Clinton and Susan Rice and Rachel Maddow, um, General Wesley Clark. Uh, you have some really extraordinary people uh, who have won it in the past. So you go to Oxford University for either a year or to three years where they pay for any sort of educational endeavor that you want to pursue. I got a master's in medical anthropology because I wanted to look at the social and cultural aspects of medicine, find that gray area of medicine, find out why people take their traditions and customs and gender roles and post-colonial stigmatizations, how they um, include that with their uh, their healthcare treatment and their, their treatment process, healing process, so I can be a neurosurgeon one day who also understands the people that I'm treating. And so Oxford was great And then I took my interview um, at Birmingham, Alabama, the same day we were playing the University of Maryland. So I did, took the interview, did well, won the scholarship, got on a private plane up to College Park, Maryland, got to the game around the second quarter. We won the game 37-3. Uh, and I won the scholarship that day. It was a big day for Florida State, my family. Uh, it was really cool. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, that sound. Now, did you do that in Tallahassee, or did you have to go to Oxford, which is in England, right? I, mm-hmm. they, my, I, yeah, so so the interview uh, was in Birmingham, Alabama, because I, I, oh, I, I, I applied so. in the district, the southeast district. Uh, and then once I won the scholarship, then you fly over to England, Oxford, and that was uh, after I was done at Florida State. What was it like over there at Oxford? I, obviously... The way it's talked about here in America is this fairy tale world where all the smartest humans on earth go, you won't go to Oxford. I mean, it's like one of these things that it talked about. How many Americans were there? And I would assume that um, it's just like a pretty legendary place to be at with the amount of brains that are around you that are equal to. Is it the first time you'd ever been like around your peers that you felt like were equal to you whenever it became to the academic world? Oh, absolutely. I, that's actually a, a great point because I transitioned from this bubble of Florida State University where my teammates were listening to Plies and Rick Ross and Trick Daddy and, <laughs> you know, just really getting after it, right? Dreadlocks, gold teeth, saying words like jit and eating country fried steak. And <laughs> now to transitioning to Oxford University where my classmates are talking about the United Nations and Gaddafi and, you know, how are we going to do world economics and keep the global resources alive? I mean, all these these crazy, really high-level, cerebral, intellectual conversations. So it was uh, it was interesting. It's very old. Uh, you realize how um, how young America is when you go there. Yeah. Uh, but it was a place where I've developed friendships that have lasted a lifetime. I have friends in Zambia now, Cairo, Egypt, Perth, Australia, 
all over the world because of my uh, my time at Oxford, and um, it's uh, it's an, it's a time and, a, and a experience in my life that. I think has inspired other young people, especially if they come from the Bahamas where I'm from or, you know, from anywhere and say, look, if I want to achieve academic success, here's a guy, Myron Roll, who did it and maybe I can do the same. So that that made it uh, worth it for sure. Being a role model is obviously not only a, a lot of pressure, but a big challenge. And I think you're a great one. Do you feel as if you're in the middle of one of those conversations you were having in those Oxford classes right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. This is it. This is exactly how it was. <laughs> All right, let's let's pivot to now. Obviously, we're in the middle of some of the craziest times in our world's history. Uh, the Spanish flu in 1917 or whatever back in the day. I, I think I don't think there's anything that's comparable to what we have going on right now. You're a neurosurgeon, uh, but they've pivoted you into being on the front lines of the coronavirus right now because Boston has so many uh, people affected by it. What is something about this coronavirus you think that is maybe, and, and I don't know how much you've heard about the outside world because you've probably been working a lot, but what do you think is a misconception about this coronavirus? There's a lot of talk about, oh, it's just a flu at the beginning. Then obviously the, everything has changed. Like, no, it's not a flu. This is a very different animal. It's an airborne, uh, virus and things like, what do you think is a misconception maybe about the coronavirus and what is day to day like you, uh, for you up there while you're treating patients up there? I think uh, your first question, one of the misconceptions is that, um, you know, it's very infectious and uh, it can hit anybody. And I know we've been hearing a lot of times that it's a certain subset of the population that get hit the hardest. That potentially potentially is correct, but this coronavirus has a propensity for angiotensin converting enzyme spaces, which is just a fancy way of saying in the lungs, right? There's alveoli in the lungs. It gets there. It sits there. um, It incubates for, you know, a couple days and then seventh fifth, sixth, seventh day, boom, you quickly decompensate potentially. Your oxygen saturation goes down. You start breathing fast. You start trying to figure out how you can get oxygen into your body. They may have to flip you prone so you can expand your lungs better. You have a cytokine release system where like your your whole autonomic system kind of gets out of array and disarray. So a lot of things happen quickly. And I think the misconception is that A, this is not that serious and B, that um, you know, it doesn't have devastating effects quickly on people where you have to make these end of life discussions and these goals of care discussions between family members who aren't even allowed to be at the bedside because the visitor policy at most hospitals, especially ours in Mass General, won't allow people to come in because we're afraid that they may bring in more infections. So that is something that's real. I hope people put a human face on this issue and realize that it's not just fantastical. It's not just something that's disconnected. We are all a part of this together. We're all a part of this global and national team, if we're speaking about this in the United States, uh, and that it has a serious and dire consequences for sure. Okay, so what is the difference between this particular strain of virus that it can, from what, I mean, it depends on what day it is, the information you hear. You hear that it can live on a hard surface for a certain amount of time. Then you hear it can live on a cardboard where other viruses, as soon as they hit air or a certain temperature, they kind of dissipate. With this one, they're saying that it it can live on and continue. What does that mean? And is that accurate? So, so yes, we have heard, uh, you know, stories that um, this virus has an envelope, really like a protective covering uh, that allows it to live on these surfaces, door handles, um, anything that you basically touch. And that's why it's so important for hand hygiene. We were mentioning that early on, and I think people have sort of taken to that. If you can see the amount of consumption of uh, hand sanitizer around the nation, maybe it's just a little bit of hysteria trying to be prepared, but it's something that's real. Lifestyle behavior modification hygiene is incredibly important. We do it all the time when we go in and out of the room, wash our hands, make sure we're gowned up, and make sure we're not touching anything. 
that has been touched by a patient who's either a COVID-19 rule-out or positive. Uh, they're on contact precautions, they're on droplet precautions, they're on airborne precautions, they're in special rooms because we know this is very, very difficult. And even as neurosurgeons, there's some crossover with this virus with us in head and neck surgery. If we go into the nose or we go into any of the sinuses to you know, evacuate some sort of tumor, uh, there's aerosolized particles that could get up in the air and infect us. We use high-speed drills a lot of times and electrocautery, you know, these things that sort of burn through tissue. That can aerosolize the body fluids and get into us as well. So there's issues everywhere. This is very serious. I wish I could take the people who are reading this or hearing about this on social media and take them into our hospital and see that, yeah, it's, it's not a game. It's not a joke. Uh, we still have a long way to go. And it takes some time, and uh, we're doing the best we can on the front lines, for sure. We'll talk about the curve in a, a little bit, because out here in Indiana, the sun's getting a little bit brighter. The weather's nice. It feels like people aren't quarantining as much as they were maybe in the last three weeks, four weeks. I think I think Indiana is a place that was really taking the precautions seriously. The roads were emptied. There was a lot going on. Then the weather changed, and it feels like people went from being stir-crazy to feeling freedom to feeling invincibility. Are we at the point where... The the people who have it are contained enough where the quarantining isn't as necessary as it has been in the past? Or do we still think there are potential asymptomatic carriers and people walking around who have it who can continue to maybe bump this curve right back up to where it was headed before? I'd say the latter. I don't think we're out Damn. of the I think we have. Yeah, I think we have some more time to go for sure. And, you know, asymptomatic carriers, you feel good. Um, you know, you, you feel like you have that cloak invincibility, like you said. Uh, you want to get back to normal life because this is what you do. This is who you are. And this has really disrupted all facets and aspects of human life. It's, it's not something that I have to really explain because we all are living it. But at the same time, epidemiologists, scientists, PhDs, they have to have the time. They have to have the time to find a vaccine, a cure, some sort of therapy that's going to be safe and efficacious to be able to um, be available for public consumption on a wide level. Uh, and uh, I don't think we're, we're just there yet. So it's going to be some, some more time. We need to be a little bit more patient with this whole thing. Hydrochloroquine in a Z-Pack has been something that's been talked about both on social media and on whether you turn on anywhere on YouTube, on the news. Everything has been talked about how in cases that it's been used and this number might be wrong it's a number that i saw on the internet so it could be wrong 90 percent recovery rate whenever hydrochloroquine or z-pack are mixed together is there a reason is that accurate that number then your knowledge and also is there a reason why you can't just give a stamp of approval on a, a cure because it hasn't been trialed and tested and in these uncharted waters if somebody gives like hey this is the answer and it doesn't work then obviously there's a chance for a little bit more hysteria what do you feel about the hydrochloroquine and the z-pack combination and is that potentially going to be our answer in the long haul? And they just don't know if that's the case yet. It, it potentially could be. It, it Potentially. Uh, and I use that word again three times, potentially. I, I think you need to have a, uh, a drug or some sort of therapy that um, is not going to harm a patient worse than what the virus they're trying to protect it from will do. And also is going to do what it's intended to do. Not going to have deleterious side effects that will truly hamper and impede the health of the person who is once taken it just for prophylactic cases. But there have been doctors and scientists working for uh, not only hydrochloroquine and, and azithromycin combination, but also angiotensin uh, converting enzyme inhibitors potentially as a way uh, to affect change. Uh, some antiretrovirals as well. So there's there some um, um, uh, some IL immunoglobins as well. Some other important 
some other important scientific um, uh, modalities and methodologies to try to figure this thing out. So there's there's several different experimental drugs going on at this point, and we're trying to expedite the process. But I think the most important part is that we just need to remain patient and not um, become uh, subject to uh, the time of haste, that we just need to get back to our normal life and watch sports again or go back and play on the street again or go and join these large crowds in our favorite gatherings um, before we truly, truly have an answer. As medical professionals, we are at baseline very conservative, uh, and so we want to make sure that things are incredibly, incredibly safe before we distribute it to our population because at that point, if we do and it ends up being harmful, that just adds the census to the hospital, overrides it once again, and this this idea of maybe getting people out of the hospital because you're treating them with this drug actually backfires on you because they're actually coming back in and restressing your healthcare system, which can be uh, very very difficult. Okay, so here in Indianapolis, uh, Eskenazi Hospital downtown, they had the ability to change their entire hospital to an IC. Every room could be an ICU room for this uh, coronavirus uh, victims. Now, the big talk out of Europe and Italy was that the medical system couldn't withhold the amount of patients that were coming in. The infrastructure is basically not enough for the amount of people. I heard that story in New York. They're building tents in Central Park. They had other things happening. You look outside of hospitals, they have tents in the parking lot where people are coming in getting tested and then maybe filtered in in boston where you're at is it at capacity or is your hospital continue to be at capacity or have you seen a little bit of a waiver in the amount of people coming into the hospital with the covid19 i would say the latter you know it's kind of going a little bit maybe plateaued but i think it's going to spike and for our hospital we've been proactive in trying to maybe even get our pediatric patients out of the hospital and into our children's hospital, because as we know, the children's can be carriers and they can be anitis, but they aren't typically the worst affected by this. And so if we get them out of our hospital and to another hospital across the street, that opens up the pediatric wards and pediatric ICU uh, to be ICUs for adult patients who come in with COVID-19. So these are some of the ways we're trying to do this. Our PACU, our post-op anesthesia recovery areas that we do after surgery, uh, those areas are now be turning into ICUs and we're trying to consolidate the IC, um, the, the PACU uh, spaces for our post-op patients. So just being creative with our bed space, being creative with our personnel, uh, making sure that only essential staff members are in the hospital so that you're just not reinfecting people who are here with us uh, every day. All of that is important. I think in the next week, we're really going to be challenged and our administrators and leaders just need to continue to make the decisions that keep us ahead of, of this issue rather than playing catch up. And that's important. Chris Cuomo, uh, Paisan, who works for CNN, I guess he had a nasty bout with COVID-19. He talked about having hallucinations. Uh, he, he said he was obviously puking and he massive temperature and uh, shivers and everything like that. Have you seen it? And by the way, that was the first time I had heard the extent of how bad this uh, virus really is for people at your hospital. Has it, is there levels to this thing or is it, is there like a, hey, this is like an average COVID-19 patient? Oh, damn, this is the hallucination, shivers, puking, COVID-19 potential pass away. Like, is there levels to it or is everybody that gets it basically in a terrible spot? I mean, everybody. Yeah, yeah no, there's certainly levels to it. You're absolutely right. And it starts off not as um, not as severe as one may think. You're like, okay, you, get, you tested positive with a nasopharyngeal swab. Um, you tested positive again. So it's a true positive. We actually believe that test to be real, and then you're managed, and you're you know you're taken care of, and you're in critical care, and you're uh, having acute you know Q one hour, maybe Q thirty minute checks from nurses and uh, and the staff, uh, and then by day five, six, or seven, 
boom. Then you then you have the cytokine release. Then you have respiratory distress. Then you have compromise in that respect. Then you start decompensating quickly if it gets very severe. And if you are somebody you know who's potentially um, you know uh, with pre-existing and pre-morbid conditions that put you even more at risk. I think what's positive about the Chris Cuomo uh, situation and others who are had the platform to speak about um, this issue, it gives us anecdotal, real-life information uh, on what's actually happening. It takes in the world of COVID-19. And again, I think that just as a human face and a real story behind this so that people say, you know what, this isn't just some you know far-out-reaching, stretched-out figure. This isn't just some hysteria or scare that people are trying to get over on us. Uh, no, this is a real thing that people who we somewhat know, through media at least, or through our communications, um, they, uh, they're going through it and it could happen to me too. Anytime you put a face to a cause, it obviously hits home a lot more. I think a lot of people did that with Chris Cuomo. You mentioned there that you do one test and then you do a second test. Has there been a lot of false positives you found on the first test? And what is the difference between the first test and the second test? And have the tests changed? Because I think I saw a graph where the first test was like they shove it in your nose, it touches your brain, and then it comes out. And a lot of people were scared to get tested almost. You're doing that twice. Is that because there was false positives or why, why would that happen? So uh, it doesn't touch your brain, thankfully, uh, or else there'd be a lot more calls for neurosurgeons to help, for sure. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so a lot of times the, the double tests are done based on um, you know, high risk factors. Someone being very old, having a lot of premorbid conditions, uh, you want to make sure for certain that they have COVID-19, uh, that you're not you know, treating somebody um, who's got a, um, you know, a false positive with you know, all the resources available when this person may not actually have it. And it's true. It's not a 100%, 100% sensitive, sensitive, 100% specific test. There are hardly any tests that are like that. Um, so it's really on the discretion of infectious disease, our wonderful medical teams, our bio threats team here at Mass General, when they say, okay, let's look at this patient's profile. Let's see if they are at high risk. They're likely to have COVID-19 if it's negative. Let's test them again to make sure they're really negative. Or if it's positive, let's make sure they really are because our resources need to be allocated correctly. Our energies and focus need to be allocated. And if we're going to put it all in on this person, let's make sure they have it. So uh, that's important. Do we have a lot more tests than we originally had? Like, are we at the point where we have enough tests? For instance, when the MLB is thinking about building a biodome type situation out in Phoenix, where all the players are going to go out there, they're going to be quarantined in apartments, they're going to play in the 10 stadiums around Phoenix and go back to their apartments, no fans, no family, no nothing. But they thought they could potentially look bad if they're eating up tests to make sure everybody's clean when the rest of the world might not have enough tests. Is that something that the MLB should be worried about or people should be worried about? Is there not enough tests? I think here in Indianapolis, only essential uh, professions that were in the medical field were allowed to get tested. Are we at the point where we have enough tests to find out if people got it or not? So if people do have it, we can put them away? Or are we still trying to figure out ways to create those? So I think we certainly could get more tests. Uh, I think we have a decent amount right now, but I think it's important not to just um, not to test everyone just based on a whim. It has to really be done based on symptoms, exposure, your history, uh, the looking at the whole overall patient profile. Uh, if you're a person who has been in contact or at least six feet within contact within someone who's got a positive test or been exposed, I think it's reasonable that you get that test. And I think there are places that you can, whether it be through the Department of Health in your local communities or through major hospitals like ours, uh, talking to your uh, primary care physicians to sort of make sure that we manage through these waters. Um, I, I think that's important not to sort of overuse the resources that we have. While we do that, while we sort of triage these patients ourselves, 
Um, I think more tests are going to be continuously being developed, especially in hotbed areas like Philadelphia is coming up on a hotbed situation. We certainly are. Other cities around the country, especially places where people are on top of each other and re-exposing themselves. Um, these are things that are important. So it takes a, a holistic approach to this. Uh, and while we do that, by looking at the whole patient in its entirety or in their entirety, uh, then we can kind of ramp up our test availability and accessibility to everyone. How come six feet was the chosen distance? Is that son of a bitch only got a six foot vertical? Or like, what, how does, how does, why is six feet the, uh, the number? Yeah, you know what? I, I'm not exactly sure. That's a question better answered by an epidemiologist or Dr. Fauci, who, who's on TV a lot. Oh, we'll call him. Really good work. <laughs> Hit him up. Uh, when you were, uh, you know, maybe taking an interception back to the house and jamming the Rick Ross implies in that Florida State locker room, did you have a feeling that one day you'd be on the front lines in one of America's most storied cities, Boston, battling against a worldwide pandemic? You know, I, I never thought that for sure. Um, you know, neurosurgery is so subspecialized. You know, people come in with brain tumors or aneurysms or de degenerative disc disease and like, okay, this is what I'm going to fight. This is what I'm going to treat. This is what I love to do. Uh, and this has really repurposed and, and redeployed me and my colleagues to something totally different. But it's a part of, uh, I think, my makeup. Uh, to just want to help a very, you know, mar marginalized and underserved population. Um, I'm from the Bahamas originally, as I might have alluded to, and we had Hurricane Dorian hit our country uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. And I left Boston. I left Harvard, not because I'm an emergency response clinician, not because I know how to test cholera in water or how to avoid, you know, stepping on rusty nails to get tetanus or something like that, but because I have some healthcare skills that could aid my home country. And so when I see things that are, um, are, are, are ways that I could give back and I can serve in any capacity, I want to do it. And a lot of my colleagues have taken on that same ideology. You're awesome, man. I can't thank you enough. I feel like at some point in our conversation, you thought to yourself, this does feel like one of them fucking conversations <laughs> at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly, man, for hey, sure. All we needed was like some, um, you know, some tea and some crimpets or maybe some bangers and mash or fish and chips or something like that. Hey, we got bangers for you. You got Rick Ross and Plies on deck. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> hey, doctor, uh, I'll have to have you come back on. That was an, I thank you so much. You made me feel so much smarter. I feel like a lot of people probably learned some things there. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it for having me. Definitely. You ever seen a movie Phenomenon with John Travolta? I have not, no. It involves neuroscience. I didn't. He has a he has a brain tumor that makes him like this superhuman, basically. And I just wanted to know how I could get one of those. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I probably stay away from getting brain tumor. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Rhodes Scholar, Doctor Myron Roll. Thank you, man. Thank you. Hey, cheers, Doc. Appreciate you, man. Appreciate you, boss. Yes, sir. Hello, and welcome to McAfee and Hawk Sports Talk here on beautiful. Thursday, April 9th, 2020. I am the first half of the name, Pat McAfee, sitting to my left, the incredibly chiseled job man, AJ Hawk. Attaboy, AJ! Attaboy, hey, AJ! It's good to be with you, Pat. I know Diggs has just started his trek to try to walk in a treadmill for 24 hours straight or get to what? above 35 miles so it's an exciting time right now yeah it's a, it's a very exciting time it, it might be april 9th and it might be day x of quarantine from COVID 19 but what everybody will remember is that thursday april 9th was the day that a man from Plumborough, pennsylvania a man that was a former division one athlete a man that is you all right aj division one athlete high school or college <laughs> 
I told you I've watched his high school tape. I just wasn't sure where he played Jeez. in college. He played uh, Division One football at Duquesne University Woo! in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was a highly recruited man whenever he came out of Plum High School. He was a freak athlete. Everybody loved him since then. He has not done much activity. But since getting engaged to his fiance Erica, he has maintained a diet and a discipline to get smaller for his wedding pictures. I'm not sure I've ever seen Diggs in better shape post high school than he is right now. He walked this past weekend 12 miles over a two-day period in two different things. Will he be able to, in the next 24 hours, walk at least 35 miles so he can make 3,500 bucks? Will he maybe make it to 40 miles where the monetary value will be doubled to $8,000? Will he make it to 45 miles to 50 miles? We are not 100% sure. AJ, looking at that man right there, do you think he is on pace? He's only about three quarters of a mile into this thing and 17 minutes into this thing. Nine. 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 He's almost at his first mile, 17 minutes in. Obviously, he's a 20-minute mile. He's doing three miles an hour. Do you think a, uh, that he has any chance of making it to 35 miles, which is more than a fucking marathon, in the next 24 hours? Yeah, I do. I think Diggs is going to make it. I mean, he's going to rely on some of that rust belt grit. That oh, guy yeah. 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 Right now, but I, I hate to tell him. I know he's wearing a knee sleeve on his right knee, like you see sixty-year-old men wear at Disneyland when they're walking around with their little kids. A knee sleeve is not going to help you, Diggs. I'm just going to let you know. AJ, what's up, man? You look good. When I was preparing this weekend, the one flaw that I noticed was that my knee was giving out. So I did something about it. Well, if you guess what, if your knee is giving out, a knee sleeve from Walgreens isn't going to help it stay in. <laughs> It's actually from CVS. <laughs> it's a copper fit, too. Have a little bit of respect for the oh, copper fit that Brett Favre yeah. can... St- Brett Favre wears the elbow, the wrist, the knee, the ankle, and that son of a bitch is slinging around with high schoolers down in Mississippi still to this day. Dig saw that commercial. He was influenced, went right to the... I had seen on TV, Iowa, CVS, and said, give me whatever Brett Favre's got, but still, in that particular commercial, you wear that directly on the skin. Dig shows to put it on top of his tights, which will ultimately, I think, end up with that thing just slipping down his leg the entire 24-hour period. Is that accurate in how this has started, Diggs? Yeah, it's already started slipping down, but I don't like the way that it feels on my skin, so... What? Well, do you like the way your knee falling off of your body feels? Or, I mean, which one are you choosing here? We'll be alright. Don't worry about me. Hey, he... We are, by the hey, way. Hey, we're at a mile. Yeah. Just hit a mile. Hey! 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 Here you go, Tony! Only 34 more. (laughs) Bro. Piece of cake. (laughs) He's got to be getting so nervous right now, like so early on in his trek to try to walk over 35 miles. I assume, so if he gets 35 miles, he gets $3,500 and it continues to go up from there each mile he walks. And I I would assume all this money is being donated to to the COVID-19 fight, right? (laughs) Digs his pocket. Absolutely, yeah. Well, at least half. Is it like a 50-50 split? Are you doing a 50-50? Just say the- proceeds. Say some proceeds go to, proceeds go to the fight. COVID-19 awareness. A portion. A portion. A portion. Yeah, there you go. That'll get you out. As long as you $56, don't. $56, just like Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> Ten grand. I mean, he's preparing for a wedding right now. Now, obviously, weddings, uh, people that are having spring weddings are really oh. in quite a bind right now. 
I was in a bind. I was quite behind, and I was looking for a soul to steal. I mean, it is in a <laughs> bad spot. These wedding plannings for the spring. Diggs is in the middle of one. An extra ten thousand bucks in his pocket yeah. is a massive ordeal. And by the way, it's only forty nine miles away from him right now. <laughs> That's it. It is forty nine miles. Ten thousand dollars. Big check. You got to take the big banks. Is only forty nine miles away from him right now. That has to be something that's cooking through your mind right now, Diggs. Am I accurate in saying that? I'm sorry. What was that? <laughs> He's in the zone. He's I mean, zone. you got to respect it. He's in hey, the no. Zone. This is Pat. This is exactly how it's going to go with Roger Goodell and the guys that get drafted. You're going to cut to him. Oh, excuse me. What? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, but, let's step on each other. No, uh, I don't know. What? <laughs> He's right. No, you. And we got Roger what? Goodell to do it. You know the best part about it? They said there's going to be two cameras in each prospect's home. One to like a live cam to show their family celebrating first off. What are you going to do if all of a sudden the live cam shows 50 people inside somebody's family room? I was That's not a great message. I was just watching the college game day live on Instagram, IG Live. Maria Taylor was on there with Isaiah Simmons. And she actually asked him, she said, what are you going to do for the draft? How's your setup going to be? And he goes, a lot of people have been asking me if I'm going to do that 10-person limit thing. And he goes... And she goes, oh, well, don't tell anybody, you know, and he starts laughing. I think there's going to potentially be 70 people in these houses. (laughs) It's going to be little COVID-19 hotspots. But, hey, you made it to the NFL. You made it to the NFL. Good for you. (laughs) I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out PR-wise. Well, the funny thing I was reading, they said, so there's a camera that's always live showing the reaction of the family and friends that are there, whoever. I guess that you could claim you've been quarantined with them since the beginning. But then they're going to simulate walking like to the podium, and that's going to be walking to another camera where it's described that they will interact with Roger Goodell. So is Roger Goodell going to be interviewing these guys? Because I don't think Roger Goodell's ever conducted an interview. <laughs> They'll do the visual dap-up. You know what I mean? Oh, gosh. It's going to get so awful. Maybe it's for this. Like, hey. Elbow, elbow, well, well, welcome to the NFL. Virtual elbow. Hands. Pat, we should do it. I don't know. I text. We should do a, a Friday night draft or Thursday night, I guess, is when the draft is. Like a draft show, a live thing during the draft. I agree. Mm. I think we should. A lot of people have mentioned that we should go live during it. I think we should as well. I, there's potential fireworks all over this. And I've said this a couple of times. Anytime you need to break up with somebody, you do it via text. Anytime you need to tell somebody bad news, you do it via text. Back in the day, you used to be frowned upon for that, but now it's just kind of normal. If anybody doesn't like what is happening, the ability to do it virtually is a lot easier than doing it in person. I, I am pretty pumped up about the the potential, you know, trades, not choosing to go somewhere, a lot of big names. What's going to happen to Tua? Is Tua going to tank? If people are tanking for Tua, now is Tua going to tank? Isaiah Simmons or the Patriots going to make a move? Ooh. Well, I'm, I'm pumped. I think draft is going to be electric. And the obvious and inevitable technology failures will be something we should definitely react to because we're doing what they are attempting to doing on a daily basis. Five hours a day we're doing it. The NFL, this billion-dollar company, will be trying to do it for one night, two nights, for a couple hours. I'm excited to see how they pan out in the Internet world. Oh, it's going to be awesome because you're dealing with a lot of people who have zero awareness of what the internet is like. And it's going to be so fun. That's why I think it'll be fun for us to have like a live reaction show where we're watching it and we can can see because there's so many variables here that they have to deal with that have never, they've never even thought about before. And that's on top of them trying to make decisions that are going to affect not only like the GM, the head coach's lives, but all their families, everybody, like huge decisions are being made. And there's going to be a lot of technical glitches. It's going to be fun, man. I think it's going to be a good, uh, I guess, distraction from what we're going through. You know what else is a good distraction? What? 
watching a guy that's never walked more than 10 miles in his life <laughs> try to attempt to get to 50. Diggs, how we feeling? Feel pretty good. I have increased the juice to 3.5. Well, you're going to regret that. <clears throat> that's you, what everyone's telling me. Who's everyone in the Twitch comments? Yeah. Well, they We're know. At, uh, Those big fat stooges. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? We're at 1.4 miles. You are ahead of schedule here. I feel pretty. The feet starting to hurt already. Already, <laughs> you're 24 minutes into a 24 That's hour. That's all right. Those are bones. Those will heal. <laughs> they wore white shoes. There's going to be blood on those. It's Roger some... Clemens, baby. Uh, Kurt Schilling. Roger Clemens. <laughs> Kurt Schilling. Kurt, Kurt Schilling. There it is. Same thing. This is your white shoe game, Tony. This is your white shoe game. Overweight hey. stooge pitcher. AJ, listen. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> AJ, uh, we have certain things planned throughout the 24 hours. We don't know when they're going to happen, but there are things we've thought about and talked about potentially doing. Somebody should mute his microphone, but the, he just he just grasped <laughs> the sound. He just realized uh, 3.5 was a bad idea. <laughs> ah, did you hear that? Ah, in the back. We're going to have a trivia challenge, 10 questions. For each one he gets right, he gets an extra .1 mile. So he might be able to gain a mile just by his big old brain that he has. He went to Duquesne, Division One football player. That is also considered an Ivy League school if mm -hmm. they had more grass on the campus. So he is a smart person, he says. I don't know if that's accurate. We're also going to play a game of risk, I believe. The boys are going to play a game oh, yeah. of risk mm -hmm. with him. Uh, if he wins, obviously, we'll pick him up another half a mile. In those trivia questions, though, if he gets it wrong, I think we're going to uh, lift his incline up just a little bit. <laughs> I think that has to be a punishment, right? You can't just get – you can't have something that has only a reward. There has to be a punishment of some mm -hmm. sort. So I think the, the punishment will be like five minutes at an incline or something. Like, do you have any ideas? We probably should have thought this out a little bit earlier. No, I think he should – not only if he misses – like the first question he misses, you incline it uh, you know, 5% of what he's at now. Next one he misses, you incline another 5%, and you hand him 10-pound dumbbells that he has to do oh, bicep geez. curls with for 10 minutes straight. Things like that. Let me know. I can spitball all kinds of things. I'll, I'll send you some tips. Might as well get a fireman suit for him. Jeez, AJ. Give him a break. He doesn't, he doesn't wake up every morning like for his entire life and work out. Now, as of late, he has been, by the way, because yep. he's getting into wedding shape. It's been very impressive, the amount of discipline he's had. Getting Wait, when's the wedding? When's the date? August. It's in August sometime. Okay, you said spring. I was really worried when you said spring wedding. So late summer wedding. On, yeah. I guess that's still on the table. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. Fauci's saying we may never shake hands ever again with anybody. Yeah, I mean, how are you supposed to get married if you can't shake a hand? Yeah. I mean, uh, what about the consummation? I'll I'm love... saying we just throw shakas from now on. I love a little shaka. What, <laughs> can uh, can my penis shake your, my wife? Who was that with? <laughs> Who were we doing that with, Pat? Uh, when we had the they got the ultra the hundred mile guy. On. That's how this all started. Is hang loose, David Kilgore. <laughs> See, he gets it. Mm -hmm. You don't need to shake anybody's hand anymore. Hey, it's outdated. Sh shaking dicks. <laughs> <laughs> you can touch tips if you want. Just the tips. You guys are playing tummy sticks. Just the tips. Um, some things happen in our world that you should talk about. Is Clay Matthews coming on the show today or not? I don't know. He said he's in the middle of a workout, and if he gets done, he will <laughs> give us a call around too. So I'm going to reach out via text here in another 30 minutes or so. Is Clay Matthews always in the middle of a workout? Yeah, he enjoys working out. I'm sure you, you're not surprised to hear that. Yeah, I, well, he had like a vitamin milk or a protein milk that he came out with. Wasn't he a part of the protein milk? Uh, muscle milk, when he was drafted, I remember, they cut to a camera to him, and he had like seven bottles of the same muscle milk sitting right there. My, so this is, good. Man, I wonder how much he got some good cash for that. This is good marketing. I bet you he's drinking all of those. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he's still with them or not, but it was a, is he a, a good free, move for both of them. He's a free agent. He and Todd Gurley are talking about how the L.A. Rams owe them money. What does that mean? I don't. So when Gurley's first tweet came, he said, "What they're late? Like you owe me money?" Basically, he tweeted, then then Clay jumps in and says, "Yeah, me too. We need some interest on this." And I thought I took it as a joke, and now it looks like it's serious. Well, yeah, I don't think you're just tweeting at the team publicly, like, "Hey." Pass due, send me money. And then Clay Matthews like, me too. Add some, tax them, tax them. If they're going to be late with your money, you got to tax them. I don't know how that works because I always assume money just came. Now, granted, I was the same guy that signed my contract, and I thought signing bonus was just going to immediately appear in my bank account. That didn't happen for a couple months. But I would assume with the facilities being shut down, the accountants and the people in the back end that aren't allowed in the building, I could see how something like maybe owing somebody a few million dollars could potentially sip through the cracks. And I think that's what Todd Gurley and Clay Matthews, because the best way to get anything done is to publicly shame them. And that's what they're doing on Twitter right now. The Rams have not answered. I I guess they're saying they're not going to answer. But this is a pretty wild scene that a billion... By the way, Kroenke, not only does he own the Rams... He owns the Rockies, the Avalanche, Arsenal, the L.A. Gladiators, and a couple other teams. Denver Nuggets. Denver Nuggets. This dude owns every sports team there is, basically. I wonder how many of his players haven't been paid and if they're expecting paychecks anytime soon. Well, we will see. I guess Gurley and and Clay are the two guys that are are going to put it out there and see, are are we going to pressure these teams into making sure we get paid on time? Maybe the teams felt like, hey, in these times, yeah, you'll get paid, but it may be a few weeks later than what your contract says it should be. But I guess the players are holding them accountable. So, yeah, you're right. Publicly shaming them, calling them out on a public platform. That's the best way to get things done. What is, <laughs> I don't know if it's the best way, but it's definitely a way that works, I think. Um, April, what would it have been in their contract? April 7th, their own owed money? Is that what it would say? Like, hey, well, I don't, it depends, though, because they were, they were both released, right? Yeah, I don't know. So when they, were, when they were... One was traded. Yeah, Todd was traded. Yeah, Todd's traded. So yeah, I guess he maybe he's owed a certain portion from the Ram, from the Rams, and maybe it's a whatever April first bonus check that he was supposed to get that's built in. I don't know what Clay's deal is like uh, after you get cut. I'm not sure how they that how they work all that out. You 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 can look up people's contracts though, can't you? Uh, you have oh. to read through a hundred pages and try to figure it out. I, yeah, but who knows if they have those finer little details like oh, on April seventh, you're owed. I mean, I guess. Some of those insiders tweet out like, today, blah, 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 gets paid a million dollars because it's not. So I assume that information is somewhere. It's Someone more- will dig. If this gets enough legs, which it seems like it already has, don't you think your guy Schefter is going to dig through it or Rappaport, one of these guys? Absolutely. Andrew Brandt, he's a contract guy. He was the contract guy in Green Bay when I got there. Uh, I was just told that Todd Gurley was not traded. Yeah, he was released. Nick, Nick so they're both released. So I, I would assume if, you're, if they're cut, there's something in there about the money that they're owed. I guess maybe they were. I don't know. I honestly have no idea how it how it works out since they were both cut, and now what? A couple weeks later, you're owed some money. I don't know. I'm not sure how this works. Maybe hopefully Clay gets done with that workout and he calls us. Um, here we go. Just got an updated a uh, little bit of a pivot here. Trent Dilfer told I don't know who it. TMZ Sports is reporting that Trent Dilfer says Tua Tagovailoa is a Hall of Famer and has a better arm than Dan Marino. Trent Dilfer is currently training 
Tua Tagovailoa. So obviously Tua's success does directly affect Trent Dilfer's future success in training quarterbacks. But who other than Trent Dilfer, who's with Tua every single day, would be able to make this type of remark? I'm not sure anybody. Trent Dilfer obviously won a Super Bowl, but he is widely heralded as the guy who won a Super Bowl because the defense was so good with that Baltimore Ravens team. He's done a lot with elite 11s in training quarterbacks. Matt Hasselbeck says he's a good guy. He's been with Tua every single day. I think the hype in talk around Tua has become a bit negative here as of late as we're rolling into the draft. A lot of people talking about his injury proneness and a lot of people on uh, television saying if I'm somebody and I draft Tua in the top five, I am potentially wasting a pick whenever he inevitably gets hurt. People are saying that on television. And then there's people like Tannenbaum who used to be a general manager for the Dolphins coming out and saying that uh, you got to take Herbert over, over Tua. And people are like, well, if he's saying that he's probably hearing something for some else i wonder this to a story how it's going to unfold but those are some massive words from trent dilfer saying that he's got a better arm than dan marino dan marino used to have the quickest release in history and yeah. through for all of the yards without ever winning the super bowl and he's a hall of famer there's a lot of good quarterbacks in the nfl that won't be a hall of fame even though it is catered to quarterbacks making pro bowls and hall of fames I, I just don't know how this Tua thing pans out because when I was watching him play at Alabama, he was so good. He was so good. I feel like he could drop a ball in a bucket if he had to. Accuracy is the number one thing when it comes to NFL quarterbacks when you ask a bunch of people. I, I think he has that, but the durability, the surgeries, you can see why people are asking questions, and Trent Dilfer's trying to get in front of that. Yeah, I mean, I understand why Trent would say that, but no one's questioning Tua's playmaking ability or his arm strength or anything like that. The, the main concern and why there's been negative talk is – Strictly because of his injury history, he had a he had a wrist that he I think he broke in spring ball the first day one year. He had an ankle. He's got a hip situation. So it's not about his play. It's not like all of a sudden people are down on what he's doing on the field. It's just they're worried about his durability if he's going to be able to hold up in the NFL. A couple of those surgeries weren't real surgeries, though. What do you mean? Like I think a couple years ago, those sprained ankle surgeries wouldn't happen. They would just have him in a boot and tape him up and he'd be hobbled in the pocket instead of getting that surgery to get him back in two to three weeks. Like I think down in Alabama, because they make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars down there, but they have to spend the money so they can say that they're not for profit. I think they bring in doctors and surgeons and medical people and they say, hey, we got this sprained ankle surgery that we can come in, clip something. He's back two to three weeks feeling a lot better than he's ever felt as opposed to the old days when he gets sprained ankle, you're hobbled around, you're standing around or you're out a month or whatever i think a couple of those surgeries two of them were for sprained ankles that i think just a few years back wouldn't have been surgery so he would have had that wrist surgery he would have had that hip surgery which i think people would have said you know what the hip thing was kind of a fluke injury i think it's a whole different narrative because the science at down in alabama they're like oh we got the surgery for the sprained ankle thing do you agree with that or am i completely out of pace, uh, place in saying that no i mean it may have been somewhat of uh, an elective ankle surgery to get him back on the field quicker so, yeah, I think there may be something to that, but it just shows you how tough it is to truly evaluate quarterbacks from college going to the NFL. Like, there's there's so many guys that look so good in college, and you just never know how they're going to transition into the league because it also has to – they got to be in the right system. they got to have the right OC. they got to have a decent team around them to eventually succeed and not get beat to hell their first two or three years they play. So there's – it just shows you, I think, it's such – a tough thing to to truly understand like what's going to make a guy be successful at the next level and we don't know everyone's pretty much guessing sam bradford right got hurt in college yep yeah a couple times shoulder and then he got hurt in the nfl throughout his entire career i think he made a hundred million dollars or something like that. yeah his first contract massive mr shipley said watching him throw and everything he was 
And by the way, to get hurt and continue to get paid and signed, the upside for Sam Bradford had to be next level. I, I mean, I don't think I ever really got a chance to watch him play. I think we played against the Rams in St. Louis whenever he was the quarterback, and I think he had a great game or something like that. And I remember all the hype about him, but I don't think anybody ever really got a chance to see Sam Bradford be Sam Bradford because he always got hurt whenever he was starting to hit a root. But A.Q. Shipley said whenever he went out to Arizona, like, hey, this guy is talented I, w- I would think he would have to be by the way to keep getting signed after he get hurt but he never really could get over that hump what if Tua comes into the NFL and just never gets hurt and plays like Iron Man career like Brett Favre Peyton Manning Eli Manning like that he could potentially direct quote here from Trent Dilfer he says he throws better than Aaron Rodgers and Dan Marino well, Trent Dilfer's going to fuck around and lose a lot of friends. I mean, <laughs> Is he saying Dan Marino, too, just because Tua said, hey, look, I want to go to Miami. Can you just compare me to the greatest quarterback Miami's ever had? I don't think you should take shots at the greatest quarterback Miami's ever had. And I, I don't think saying he throws better than one of the best ball throwers in the history of existence in Aaron Rodgers. That doesn't seem like the right quote. But I like that he's stepping out there and grandstanding for his guy that he's currently training. But bah, throws better than Aaron Rodgers? Hey, Trent. I, I mean, I... I Hasselbeck says you're a nice guy. You take a lot of shots at kickers and punters, so I hate you. But like Hasselbeck has told me you're a good guy. Don't bring Aaron Rodgers' fucking name into this. Please, just don't do it. Like, just go to that. Go to it. Go to it. Don't bring that fucking guy's name into this, Trent Tilfer. You hear me? Don't do it. Just don't do it. The guy goes into the Matrix. Now, if Tua, by the way ends up being anywhere near a conversation with Aaron Rodgers or Dan Marino, that's good news. But I feel like Trent feels as if he has to say these grand things to spin the narrative away from him just being hurt all the time. Yeah, he's got to – I understand. And think about it. Trent, with what he's saying, it's never really going to come back and bite him. Like, let's say Tua goes to the next level and he gets hurt. It doesn't go against anything Trent's saying. Like, Trent's not saying, oh, he's not going to be hurt. He's not injury prone. He's saying how he throws the ball and how talented he is. So if he goes out there and he's not durable in the league, Trent's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Still has a great arm. Still can, still very accurate. Still can make all the throws. But he just got hurt. How about me saying I could do a better fucking play action than Tua, Trent? How about that? You ever heard of that, pal? We'll hold him accountable, AJ. If he goes in there and he doesn't absolutely light it up, we will come back with hellfire and brimstone right to Trent Dilfer's mouth. Oh, yeah. Hey, Trent, you remember when you said he was better than Aaron Rodgers whenever he was throwing in a thing down in Nashville, pal? What a wild thing to say, by the way. There's a lot of oh. ball throwers in the NFL. I'm not picking Aaron Rodgers, the guy who threw a Hail Mary that hit the roof in Detroit. <laughs> yeah. And then the same season, a couple weeks later, crosses his body against the Cardinals, throws 170. I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah, I, mean, Trent- I think throwing Aaron's name in there is – it is a bit much. And what what has Trent said about kickers and punters? I don't know of these comments. Oh, the same stupid shit that they all say. <laughs> oh, they're not even on the team. They're yeah, just yeah, another. Yeah. They're doing their own thing. They don't matter. Yeah. Sure, but, sure he's a good guy, but, I mean, doesn't mean he doesn't fucking stink. <laughs> Connor is really. Is he, he must be a big Tom Brady fan, too. Oh, is that why? Well, in 2014, after we lost the Kansas City Chiefs, he dubbed the Patriots Dynasty dead, and then we went on to win three Super Bowls. Stooge Dilfer. <laughs> But is the Patriots dynasty dead now? Yes. All right, AJ. I mean, we didn't have to. Uh, Tua. Tua is uh, Dan Marino. Come on. Come on. <laughs> We're talking about that right now. Yeah, you've, have you seen what Connor's wearing today, AJ? I have not. Can no. you cut to him? He just, he's wearing. <laughs> Check it out. Check it out, dude. He's wearing a NASA onesie. I, I got it. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. 
<laughs> got, my, got my astronaut helmet too. He's a spaceman. He's a spaceman. It's, it's a onesie. You got to be. Are you getting warm? I've had onesies too, and they sound like a great idea. So you're sweating bullets. Oh, he, believe me, I am. I'm losing lbs every second. Well, not really. I still got those tits. <laughs> <laughs> Connor's a different level, dude. He's a different level fool. Hey, um, let's check back in with Diggs. What is Diggs doing right now? He's having a time. It, look, it looks the exact same. Diggs, how you doing, pal? You're 30 minutes into this thing. Feel good. We 40, are 40, 40 minutes, minutes in, wow. and we're at 2.3 miles. Wow. Point three ahead of pace. Diggs, Diggs it's got to feel miles. good to kind of chip away, like, and you're making progress towards something. Like, you're already at two point something. You're basically almost there. You have basically, to feel great. Basically, and you know what has happened is all the pain has gone away. So I think I've settled in. Really? Got that runner's high. You got that walker's high going. Exactly. Don't this stop. This is why old ladies go to the mall and walk. Hold on. Uh, Diggs, we appreciate you. Let's get back to this conversation. Michael Lombardi said, he, by the way, he has a lot of um, history in New England. He said the I don't know what Gumpy just sent it to group text. Former NFL general manager Michael Lombardi, who worked with both Lions general manager Bob Quinn and coach Matt Patricia with the New England Patriots, said in his GM Shuffle podcast that he knows of two teams who flunked Tagovailoa on his combine physical, including one in the top ten. It's not just his hip, Lombardi said. It's his ankle. It's his wrist. He broke his wrist the first day of spring ball one, one year, and then they fixed it. He came back and he rebroke it again. I mean, he's brittle. He is brittle. You can't deny it, says Michael Lombardi who is uh, a friend of our show, but boy, a lot of people dislike old Lombardi, um, including Jason Kelsey in his uh, Super Bowl speech, gave him an actual shout out. But if two teams flunked him in his combine physical in the top 10, that information isn't just shared. You would assume that Lombardi uh, is hearing that information from pretty notable people, and I would assume the Lions would be one of those teams. If you start piecing together what he just said, and I think what he's inferring to is that he flunked a physical at the Combine, that's information that hasn't been leaked out that will be leaked, I assume, the week of the draft whenever somebody's looking for him to fall. But what does a failed physical mean? Tua's coming off this hip surgery. Of course he's going to fail the physical because he's not 100% back from that yet. So you're you're always going to fail a physical coming off a surgery. Yeah, I agree. And he said he wasn't 100% until weeks after the physical, after the combine. He didn't work out the combine because he couldn't work out the combine. Yeah. So what physical has he failed? Maybe is he, he's an oos? Is he smoking weed out there? Between the ear physical. Whoa. Whoa, what are you trying to say? What Ty? are you saying, Ty? I'm saying is that potentially what happened? No, see, Trent. There's Dilfer no mental it. physical that they can fail you on. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Sure? Personality test. They do fail them. That's why it's such a big deal that they can't go meet these guys and see these guys in person before the draft. You don't get failed on personality test. It's not a pass-fail thing. Sounds like someone who's failing. Yeah, sounds like you. Mm. The Lions would flunk him in a mental test because he said he did not want to be in Detroit. I think they would actually uh, that's a quick, pass him for that. Yeah, I, I think, think that's a winning answer. I think Matt Patricia would be like, yeah, me neither, bub. <laughs> <laughs> Lions didn't deserve that. They got to uh, win. They need to win this year, man. I thought they had to win last year. To be honest, Matt Patricia's friend of the show, and I think he even knows, like, yeah, I'm on day-to-day up here. I, we're on borrowed time in this entire thing. He <laughs> knows it. I'm so Does nervous. Belichick take him back? If say, Let's say this is last year in Detroit. Does Patricia just go back and be his D.C. again? What's his contract with the, the Lions? Because if the Lions are paying him, they always do that advisor or consultant role when another team's paying him to basically go win a Super Bowl somewhere else. That happens all the time. Coaches get fi- uh, fired, and then they're an advisor somewhere, and another team's paying him to go work somewhere else. 
I would assume whatever the Lions contract is, they probably have to pay him next year. I would assume Belichick, the way he operates, would love to pay somebody $0 and have him work his ass off for him. I, I think if I know anything about the Patriots organization, that sounds like something Belichick would sign up for. But I think Belichick's kid is kind of the heir apparent for that defense, right? Am I right? Oh, yeah, Steve Belichick. Yeah. Why does it seem like they, there's so much secrecy on who's calling the defense there? Like, do those show camera angles of his? It's Steve, right? Steve Belichick, his son with the long hair. Steve, yeah. I Steve think. and uh, Gerard Mayo also. He called a few games this year too. But, no way. But they they never admit yeah, to it though. They never admit to who's calling the defense though, right? They wouldn't yeah. switch play callers too, right? That's not something that would happen middle of the season for alternate games. Is that something a defensive coordinator would do? Change hey, hey, this week this person's gonna call plays next week. Now, granted, the Patriots have done things differently for a long time. Is that normal? There's no way that's normal. They're just trying to give Gerard Mayo a little bit of love here, right, publicly? I think so. It'd be very unusual to see it, the, the defensive play call change from game to game or change over the course of a season without somebody getting fired. Like the only thing I could see a new play caller stepping up is if you fired the initial play caller. But you never know what the Patriots are doing. That's why they, there is so much secrecy surrounding what's going on. So I don't know, man. I, I, I am curious as to who calls the defense. I don't know. I would assume it's Bill, right? Not yeah, not Bill. I, Bill is the one who has been calling. I mean, remember, I would assume game planning is Bill Belichick, right? Yeah. Strategy is Bill Belichick, and then maybe he teaches his son and and uh, Mayo, yeah. And even with when Patricia, before he actually got promoted to uh, defensive coordinator, he was assistant to the head coach for about eight years or something before he actually got the title. Hey, what is that? Monday, Tuesday, they go through the what their game plan is going to be, and then Wednesday is when they lay it all out. Is that how it works normally? Yeah, they build the game plan uh, Monday, Tuesday, put it all together, stay there till four in the morning, then come in Wednesday and they present the whole plan to at least they'll present if you're like a defensive guy, they'll present first, second down, maybe a red zone package or something. And then Thursday, a little bit more. And by Friday, it's all in. So, yeah, I mean, I don't I get it's a big difference from being part of the being one of the main guys to build the game plan and then being the guy that actually is pulling the trigger, making the decisions on the spot in the game, calling the defense and radio radio in it into whoever is wearing the speaker. Like that's that's a big job. Like to, to call plays in game. It's one thing to have a great scheme, but if you got to find a way to dial it up and see how the offense is trying to attack you and how you counter that. So it's a it's not an easy gig. I know that some coaches can panic right and choke play calling right that happens that that literally happens some some coaches just get kind of locked in on a couple of plays maybe their sheet because they they're not fully understanding or they're scared to call something or get aggressive some coaches say we're going to empty all the bullets in the gun this weekend and then they don't at all because they get scared i mean people talk about players getting nervous and not performing up to their standards i think play callers that happens too on a very regular basis and nobody talks about it I think coaches are the most nervous of anybody. I understand because think about it. When you have can't really impact it, when it's like, okay, I presented the plan. I've given it to my guys. It's up to them. Hopefully they execute. When you don't really have control over it, I think it does make you nervous. But you're right. It's, it's one thing to have a great scheme. It's another thing to be able to use that scheme in game and adjust to what the other team is doing. Like that's – I think it takes reps. You got to continue to do it over and over, and you're always learning. But some guys, yeah, they just get locked in. They got a giant play sheet. They're, okay, second and medium. Here we go. I got four calls on my sheet. Let's just, here we go. Well, let's just close my eyes. That one. And they do that. Like, that's sometimes it happens, and it's scary. Do they overanalyze too? Like, yes. Sean McVay against like the Patriots when the Rams were the best def- or offense in the league? They only, you know, they only put up three points. 
it, does it get happen where he just gets so nervous he doesn't call the play? You know, it didn't feel like Sean McVay was one of those guys because I think the thing about Sean McVay was his swagger and his comfort yeah. and his confidence and the ability to just call out a play and then not only his recall for situations that he's done in the past and then it did feel as if it was one massive dud in that Super Bowl. He, he didn't have the same swagger that he normally had. And by the way, it's a lot easier to have swagger when your team's doing well. Like, I remember whenever I would kick, right? Rich Rodriguez knew nothing about kicking. All he knew was, oh, keep your fucking head down. Right? So that's, <laughs> that's what he would say because he, like, related to golf. He would try to coach me, right? Like, he was, he was trying his best. But I, I would miss a kick in practice or something like that. And in those kicks, I would lift my head up to see him. Oh, keep your fucking head down. Well, there's a reason I'm lifting my head up, right? It's because I obviously hit the ball bad, and I just want to see where the hell it's going. Like, <laughs> I don't think that is actually – so when you don't – whenever you have those moments where – you have a lot more swagger when things are going well. Like you don't get called out for lifting your head up when the ball is going through the uprights. You don't get called out for this whenever things are happening. But when things are going bad, it's a lot harder to remain that confident, upbeat person whenever shit's just not working. And I think it could take any person down, including the young phenom and Sean McVay. I think that is what happened potentially with Bill Belichick, just Jedi mind fucking that guy. <laughs> well, didn't Sean McVay come in right after the Super Bowl right to the press and say, I got out coached today? Well, and he came up right before the game to Bill Belichick, and he said, uh, I'm so amazed at how your uh, your ability to adapt week in and week out with a new game plan and this whole thing. And, yeah, there's an entire conversation where Sean McVay obviously looks up to Bill Belichick, but when you're going against the greatest of all time in the biggest game that there is, yeah. you're going to assume that the guy, you got a guy and a team that's been there, done that, versus Jared Goff. I mean, he just – I think I think McVay knew going in, like, well, today's potentially going to suck. And it did. <laughs> and it did. How about I mean, they, they still should have found a way to win that game. The ramp, What was the final score? 13-3. Yeah, it was low. And that field yeah. goal was it was 10-3 until like a minute 20 left or something like that. Yeah, and the Brandon Cooks play. Brandon Cooks wide open in the middle of the end zone, and Goff was just laid on it. <sighs> or wasn't it McCourty that came over the top and broke it up? Yeah, McCourty broke it up, but it was because Goff, he, he took a, like See, look at that. That's later. Chris Collinsworth right there. You hear Chris Collinsworth right there? Yeah. He buried Goff instead of putting over McCourty. Yeah. That's negative Boston Connor. Is that a Collinsworth no. thing? I think most broadcasters, commentators, at some point, they end up pointing out the negatives as opposed to the 10 positives that happen, right? That's what I feel like. Whenever you see, um, when you see a guy wide open, a wide receiver wide open, there's a chance that he ran such a good route that he shook the shit out of the DB. And normally, the commentators tend to point out the DB's lack of footwork or balance or anything like that, as opposed to pointing out the incredible route that was just run, right? It's kind of like... Uh, it's all in your mentality. I think it's a glass half full, half empty type of person. I think most broadcasters get to that point because they just finally get jaded. They're like, ah, oh, this guy's an idiot, as opposed to like, this fucking route was insane. You know what I mean? I think there's always two ways to look at everything. It all depends on how you want to present it. Well, I think people also, when they're calling games, like they're, they don't want to be looked at as the guy that's just saying everything is great, yep. everything is rosy, and both these teams are awesome. I know um, John Gruden got that that was one of the things people would talk about him you know he he just brings some juice to the 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 booth up there but he was he was largely mostly all positive like oh these guys are amazing this is great play blah and people love for some reason it's like why we like car crashes people love to hear when broadcasters are critical of other players i don't i don't either i don't at all i i don't like like i i just don't like if a dude like say a guy catches a little swing pass or a little scat back in the in the in the flats 
and, and there's a safety coming up trying to make an, an almost impossible open field tackle with nobody else around him, and he gets shook and he misses the tackle and the running back goes and he gets 25 yards. They're going to talk about how poor tackling that was. I would be like, hey, this guy's almost in an impossible position. He's yes. just got to hang on, use his leverage. Hopefully his buddies come to help and slow this dude down and hopefully get a hand on him, trip him up maybe. Yeah, but that would be humanizing it, right? And he can't do that. They're not humans. You're right. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't do. You can't do that. Because I seen you on the Super Bowl year. They put your face in somebody's mouth, and uh, you know it was a little bit of a tough showing for you. Put my face in somebody's mouth. Yeah, you lead with your face a lot. I don't know how you led with that shovel. Goddamn crimson chin. Yeah, bang! Let me get that thing in there. All right. <laughs> you did, AJ. You did. If you're wearing a helmet, you're going to use it, Pat. Oh, so you think the way to stop the concussion problem, aside from the rules that are changing that have slowed it down, is take the helmets off the boys. Let's go backyard football. A.J. Hawk says, Super Bowl champion, Ohio State legend, A.J. Hawk says, that if they take the helmets off, the game will be safer. You know what? You That may not be false. I don't know. But is that what A.J. Hawk just said? Off. It's not football if you take the helmets off. Oh, so me playing backyard football and street football growing up, it wasn't football? I feel like it yeah, was that's, really- No, that's backyard football. That's street football. That's flag football. That's not football. Oh, I got it because there's a word before it. That's mm-hmm. not NFL football. No. That's not even college football. It's not even high school football. Diggs was great at high school football. You should have seen Diggs. Diggs. Oh, my gosh. I know, man. That dude jumped off the screen at me. <laughs> Stickers all over his helmet. He is allowed to use his arms, by the way. That was a discussion point. I think some people in this office, by the way, pretty negative people, didn't want him to have the ability. He's at three miles. Congratulations. There's a lot of people in this office that didn't want to allow him to put his arms down. I said, listen, he could drag it. If he wants to hold himself up and drag his legs on that thing, that's okay with me. Because that takes a lot of work to hold yourself up. We used to get punished. Uh, we had to get on a stair mat, the stepper. Yep. They would take, they, yeah, uh, go go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, and at the beginning, the rules were you're not allowed to use your arms. Like, you, you no hands on the thing. Like, there, Mike Barwis, our strength coach, was there. And if you put your arms, get your arms off, yelling at you. And then I think they realized that when they put your arms on there, it's actually a full body workout as opposed to just a, a leg workout because you can only hold yourself up for for a couple minutes. If you got a 45-minute hour-long punishment on the stepper, your body, you can't even... I was hanging on this thing at one point just trying to get through it. It is not a... It's not an advantage. You're actually, like, killing your entire body as opposed to just your legs. And I think... I think Diggs might be at that about mile 10 or, or mile 11. I think there's a chance that could happen. Yeah, he should be able to use his hands. I, that stair climber, man, that was always, like, the thing that people would get if you're getting punished. If oh, you're yeah. late, if you miss study table, if you miss something. And then I've watched them, I've watched them tape people's hands to the, uh, to the handles because the, the strength coach is going to try to sit there and make sure that he keeps on a fast pace. But then, you know, guys are going, they'll try to hit the button down a little bit and try to slow the steps <laughs> down. So if you just tape your hands right here and say, all right, buddy, you got an hour at this speed that I set. Have fun. Like, I've seen that happen. I forget. Uh, there was, obviously, I had a, my roommates and I had well, a. Pat, I need the. Uh, I need the. Tell Diggs to send me the call-in number. Clay said he's good to call in it too. Oh, I got it. Clay Matthews is calling in in ten minutes. Yeah. Does he have? Uh, can we Facetime him? 
He said, does Pat answer or a showrunner? <laughs> yeah, showrunner, Clay. Yeah, that's what it is. Actually, it'll be Ty Schmidt, massive Packer fan, which might not be good. I don't know if he likes the Packers or not anymore. I actually have a Clay Matthews jersey. Do you want to do it? Are you trying to do a FaceTime? I think you might only be able to do an audio call. I don't know. Audio is cool. Audio is cool. Hey, this is a big get. Yeah. AJ. Let's go, AJ. Got a boy. Dr. Drew, as you tell me. Well, that was AJ's booking. That's Dr. Drew. You got anything up? But AJ's booking. Well, Gave him a platform. That's AJ. Well, it was. By the way, just as so we remember some. Oh, own it. Yes, it was. Dr. Drew was my booking. I don't have a problem giving people that. a platform. We need to hear all different sides of the argument. I Hey, I agree. But I'm just saying I'm tired of people coming after me for it. Uh, I'm sending you a number right now. 317. I just sent it to him, too. Okay, perfect. You have it. I'll send it to him. What do we do for nine minutes? Oh, I got a question. Falcons new uniforms. Everybody's burying them for it. I didn't mind them. I like the all black. Yeah, me they, too. They said they look like the mean machine. And the Carolina Panthers Twitter is savage. I, I, Matt Rule came in there. I don't know who he brought in to run his social media, but he was like, listen, whatever you need to do, bury anybody you want to fucking bury. <laughs> that was What'd they say? Oh, you didn't see the tweet? Oh, it was a meme. No. Okay, so by the way, these, the all whites, the all blacks, the red and black, the black and white. Everybody's getting new jerseys. I just saw the Browns are going to announce new jerseys soon. You know why? They want to make money. That is correct. That is correct. They said that looked like the mean machine, uh, Adam Sandler and the boys, and I think that's pretty accurate. Here's what the Carolina Panthers tweeted immediately upon the Atlanta Falcons releasing this picture. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, good for the Panthers, man. I like it. They're probably going to end up fourth in the NFC South, but I, <laughs> I I absolutely love that they went for it there. I absolutely I do too. I, mean, I, I The reason I don't think I saw that is because normally like a team Twitter account is awful with terrible corny jokes yep. and just not anything good on there I, some are transitioning though into being good social media i mean they're still the ones that suck and matt rule may have brought that over think about it when he the college game social media is gigantic they put out highlight videos every single day from practice so i bet he maybe he brought a few people in i tried to tell the colts this whenever i was playing there and they had a guy running their social media who was a buffoon but they he's since been fired thank god but he um i tried to tell him you know for a large portion of colts fans the only representative of the Colts that they see on a daily basis is your social media. Is your social media. So whenever you guys are running these terrible things and saying these terrible jokes and all this, that that's what a lot of motherfuckers view as the Colts. And I just want to let you know, I, I very much live on social media and on Twitter. You guys have a bad account. It's a bad, it's <laughs> not good. It, it could be very easy. And I was told like, oh, you don't understand what we have to do and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, you guys, it, it, some people just don't get, by the way, they hired a new lady. Her name was Amber. She was very good. The Colts took quite a turn very quickly whenever they let uh, the new younger social media person take over. But I think there's still some teams that are run by old whites that don't really get that. That is a major marketing tool. That's a major uh, platform for your team into a a lot of people that is the only representative they see of your team on a yearly basis maybe if they don't get to see the games from out of town and it's especially i think it's getting more and more relevant as as the younger generation grows up that that has grown up with social media their whole life so i think it's it's gigantic that's what you're representing the whole team through that twitter account all of them have tons of followers i feel like just by default 
because people would love their team. So I think, yeah, I think it's a huge thing. It's a gigantic for marketing. If teams actually thought about it, they, they would put a lot of time and money into it. Yeah, they should. It's your own channel. It's literally your own television channel that has a million people that are going to watch it. I mean, it's just, it's smart. Anybody that doesn't think social media is important is a fucking idiot. And that is, <laughs> I'm happy we're almost past the stage of people not realizing that. But the Saints have a great Twitter. The Saints have a great Twitter. Yep. Titans have a great Twitter. Ravens have a great Twitter. I'm assuming the Carolina Panthers are going to go in there and start having a great Twitter. The Falcons did clap back. I mean, they did have a great response. They did a hashtag, like, salute to your team in the Cam Newton language. Oh, yeah. See, this is what I like. This is what I because it was always been like, well, we're not going to give anybody any bulletin board material. I'm like, well, I hate to break it to you. Nobody fucking believes in that. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you that. Yeah, maybe a sports commentator saying somebody stinks is going to build a chip on somebody's shoulder. But if a team's Twitter account puts out something about another team, it's not like I'm going to punt a ball better because the Titans uh, Twitter account said something about the Colts or AJ is going to hit somebody harder because the Lions Twitter put out something about the Packers. That's just not real life. That's just not how it goes. And I think they're all starting to slowly realize that this is entertainment. This is marketing. This is a way to get your message out. And this is an awesome weapon for you. Yeah, they should take a, they should take note of what Vince McMahon has done. Amen. I mean, th that, that guy seems to to go to the, the corners of the earth to do whatever he can to, to market his product. Now, they had somebody on their WWE IG Live last night. They have 20.8 million followers on Instagram. Jeez. There was 300 people watching, so that ain't it. Uh, let's figure it out. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting this. <laughs> Fabulous conversation. I mean, we were really talking good. Mm -hmm. Huh? Oh, yeah. Hey, I was proud of what we were talking. Yeah, great stuff. I mean, you're not going to hear that anywhere else. I was like, you know what? Those guys right there, the way they're talking... Good. You know? I hear you. Really good. Um, with the ever-increasing number of makes of cars, you know? Mm-hmm. You got Fiat. Sure. Kia. Yeah. Hyundai. Yep. Honda. Mm-hmm. Jeep. Yeah. GM. Yeah. Yuka. Nope. I miss it. Chevrolet. Chevy. Ford. Yeah. Cadillac. List goes on and on. Genesis. Uh, Eagle. Lincoln. Saturn. Ferrari. Tesla. Lamborghini. Audi. Uh, Volvo. Beamer. <laughs> Mercedes. Did you already use that? No. But I was just in Germany, though. That's like, in, in my head, I couldn't. Maserati. Uh, Go to Italy. Ferrari. Lambo. Anyways, there is a never-ending number of car mix these days. <laughs> and models. Now, let's go. Pacifica, <laughs> Civic, <laughs> Wrangler, Camry, Yukon, Escalade, Sport. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. It is now impossible to stock all of the parts you could potentially need for a car in a traditional chain storefront. Why endure the often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning? Excuse me, is your car the Odyssey LX, PX, DX, OX, or EX? It's like, I don't know. I fucking bought it two years ago. They're like, well, what type of thing is this? It's kind of an intimidating thing because you feel like an idiot because you don't know every single thing about your car, which is what the people at the chain storefront need. And all they're going to do is type it into 
their little computer and they're only going to be able to offer you whatever they have in the store. And that's why Rock Auto is a very rockauto.com is a very different operation. They have everything your car could potentially need and it's very easy to utilize. Rockauto.com is a family business business serving auto part customers online for over 20 years. Go to rockauto.com and shop for auto and body parts from hundreds and hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet for your damn car. Everything you could possibly need, rockauto.com has. Your traditional chain storefront just can't have everything that they have at rockauto.com. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals as do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same damn parts go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck write mcafee in there hey how'd you hear about us box so they know that we sent you that's right mcafee in there hey how'd you find out about us box so that they know that we sent you amazing selection reliably low prices all the parts your car could ever need right now at rockauto.com uh, let's move forward. A man who has dominated social media in the last couple of days. He's not known for his social media, but every once in a while, when you need your voice to be heard, you get out there, you put 280 characters out there, and you shut down the fucking internet. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us now is a man who should have been a part of the all-decade team, just like me, Clay Matthews. That boy, Clay! Woo! Well, we couldn't hear you there at the early, but I think you said thank you for uh, for having you on there, and we want to say no, thank you for coming on here, sir. Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, uh, what better time than now to come on and you know voice my opinion on the matters that be? <laughs> uh, AJ told me you just got done working out. Is that like a three-hour, four-hour-a-day type of thing for a guy that is as chiseled and jacked as muscle-milked as Clay Matthews? <laughs> No, nah, it's uh, it's it, today was a quick conditioning day, about an hour fifteen. We got it in, and uh, you know now I'm I'm back on daddy time, daddy daycare time. So uh, nothing nothing too serious. Clay, before we get to the matters at hand, I would like to ask you about one specific play throughout your career thus far. Uh, in a Pro Bowl in Arizona, after practicing in the desert and driving for three hours in there, there was a punt. You were the only person on the field that tried. You almost blocked my first ever fucking punt in a Pro Bowl. <laughs> why Why was that the case? And uh, do you ever regret that decision to give more effort than everybody else on the field? Well, I just was trying to put myself in the same category as Sean Taylor. Uh, everybody <laughs> looks at him. You know, he's, he's, he's gone down in history and... R.I.P. But for his, uh, you know, for his effort he gave in the Pro Bowl on uh, another punter. So I figured if I could block your punt for a safety, possibly a touchdown, I might be in the same talk as Sean Taylor, and that's, that's, it just means a lot. You touched my shin. Like <laughs> you were so close. I, I couldn't tell you. I don't know if that was something you did at Green Bay. If blocking punts was something you did on a regular basis, you were so. I mean, he touched my shin while I was punting the ball, and I remember thinking, "Who the?" And then I saw your hair float by me, and I was like, "I just ate breakfast with this guy before the game." I just ate breakfast. I, I, well, obviously, I didn't do a good enough job because I should have. You know, I probably closed my eyes and, and didn't keep my hands down. So I'm glad you got the punt off. I apologize for. Uh, the maximum effort given i guess i was we were all just a little upset that we weren't in the super bowl <laughs> amen i can respect that uh aj obviously talks glowingly of you as does anybody who's ever watched you play football the all decade team 
Now, granted, I was a part of the Pro Football Focus All-Decade team. They're somebody that watches every single play. Uh, and for punting and kicking, it's very easy to say if somebody did good or did bad. Pro Football Focus has a lot of knocks because they don't necessarily know the coverage or the jobs or the roles of people on, in different positions, but punting and kicking is easy. After you were not named to the NFL's All-Decade team, which is bullshit, by the way, you put out a tweet, and you hadn't tweeted since February. You said, I had 81 and a half sacks, 91 and a half career, Packers all-time sack leader, 11 sacks in 15 playoff games, Super Bowl champion, defensive player of the year six-time pro bowl three-time all pro two years at inside linebacker one time all pro running out of characters you name it and clay i'm gonna be honest when i say this i think a lot of us forgot about how big of an absolute savage you were and i think it's because and are i think it's because you don't do a lot of media i think a lot of people feel as if uh you're not as open to the media and you're not about as self-promotion as much as a lot of other people are is there a reason that you decided to put that Twitter out or that tweet out? And do you think that that is the case why you were forgotten in that decade player? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you touched on a lot of uh, things that I definitely agree with. I think first off is, you know, you look at what I was able to do in the first half of the decade as far as, you know, statistically and, um, you know, the seasons we were able to put together as well as winning a Super Bowl. Um, and then you look at the latter half of, uh, you know, the 2010s, and, you know, we obviously didn't make the playoffs for a few years. Um, you know, naturally, my sack numbers went down because I switched to inside linebackers and, sa- sorry, inside linebacker, and, you know, sack numbers are a sexy statistic. And, you know, I, I just think, uh, you know, a lot of guys came on, you know, strong in this, this latter part of, of this decade, and, um, you know, they were nominated ahead. And, and that's not to take any knock away anything from their game or anything. I just think people had, you know, forgot uh, what I was able to do, and that's kind of why I, I put that out there, just because, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, the voters got it wrong in this one. And, you know, regarding uh, putting myself out there with social media and everything, I've just, uh, I, you know, I, I did that a lot when I was younger, and I kind of just got away from it. You know, I, um, I just spend most of my time with my family and uh, people close to me and, you know, people whose, you know, opinion really mattered to me. And, um, I just, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time on there um, other than, you know, when I, when I truly want to get something out there. And uh, I, I don't know if that's, you know, harmed me with, uh, you know, voters or has, has limited, um, you know, the accessibility uh, from the media as far as, you know, people who want to vote for me or, you know, people who are liked and whatnot. But ultimately I felt like my numbers, um, you know, were there. And, uh, you know, I would have liked to have seen myself on that on that list. But, you know, it is what it is. You know, that's why I put that out there. And, um, you know, just kind of just put it out there and let the let the uh, let the fans decide. Clay, what about your uh, your follow up tweet when you kind of co-signed with Gurley uh, on the fact that the Rams may be a little late on some payment to both of you guys? <laughs> is that true? Like, do they owe you money at a certain date? And yeah, well, I, just, I think there's um I think there's a little uh, confusion as far as um when this uh, uh, bonus or roster bonus, whatever it's called, is supposed to be paid. Uh, I think we were both under the impression, Todd and I, um, in our contracts that March 30 was to be the date. And, you know, my financial advisor reached out to me a few days after. He goes, hey, you know, I haven't seen that money hit. So we, we've been going back and forth the Rams. And honestly, you know, it's money that's going to be paid. There's offset language that when we join a different team, uh, you know, that other team will have to pay it. Um, you know, there's also some confusion on the start of the calendar or, you know, the football calendar year because we both – uh, were released on the same day, so uh, you know it's money we're due. But once you know, and my agent has been handling it. Um, but once Todd tweeted that out, I had to piggyback on that. I thought it was just it was too good. So uh, yeah, I mean you know it's it's money that's due. But 
you know, I think in the contract uh, we were expecting it on one day, and it's 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 just coming a little late. But it's it's funny to read some of the comments because you know everybody thinks we're tone deaf with all that's going on in the world currently. But I mean, this is this is money that's owed for you know services rendered that we agreed to uh, you know in a contractual agreement. So uh, that's all we're asking for. I mean, it's not like we're you know we're you know claiming for for you know money that we're not due. We're just you know asking to put a, put a, put a bow on it. Yeah, Clay, we know like we people can go on and look at people's contracts and everything. So we already know the number. Why don't you tell the people how much do they really owe you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, you know, hey, why don't you give them a link? All right, I'm sure you could put a link uh, up there somewhere like that. Uh, I just, you know, I, I don't know if that's uh, it's it's up there. It's up there. It's not much odd though. So uh, maybe you should ask him. Have him call in. Clay, you're working out. Uh, what does the future hold for you? Obviously, you're in contact with your agent on a regular basis. We're in wild times right now. What are you thinking about moving ahead? And obviously, the drafts here in a couple of weeks. Are you going to wait till training camp? What does your your future look like? Yeah, well, I mean, just to be completely forthright, I was you know I was kind of uh, I was shocked when I was released. I felt like I uh, you know expe- exceeded uh, the Rams' expectations of of you know the player they were getting as well as um, you know my contractual. The contract in which they gave me, thought I, uh, you know, exceeded that, and so it kind of caught me um, by surprise. Um, but obviously, I know um, they're up against the cap, and uh, you know they've got some players with some big contracts, and you know, tough to deal with that. But ultimately, I, I you know, I still want to play. I've been in you know contact with a number of teams, and um, you know, like you had mentioned, obviously with a guy you know who's been in the league as long as I have, uh, most in free agency, the run is usually made on those guys hitting their second contract. Uh, you know, middle 20, 25, 26 year olds and everything like that. So I think we'll let the, the draft kind of unfold and then teams will reassess their needs. And, um, you know, hopefully there's a team out there, uh, you know, a winning team that, that needs somebody of my caliber who can come in and do what I do and hopefully get them over the hump. So right now we're just playing the waiting game. And, you know, like you had mentioned, there's, you know, I'm not, you're not in a rush with everything that's going on. I mean, obviously off-season program is going to be canceled and who even knows about the start of the season so we're just hanging tight just like everybody else and playing it you know playing it by ear so we'll see what happens but i can still play you know i still want to play and um you know we'll, we'll see what that means or, or where that means do you have any kind of time frame on that like do, when you talk to your agent do you have any kind of range like is it could it be right after the draft could it be in july like do you have any clue I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I think if I, if I really wanted to, and I was, you know, desperate to join a team for, you know, a, you know, a, a contract that probably wasn't, you know, up to, um, you know, what I deserved, then I'm sure I could have done that already. But I think ultimately, you know, at this point in my career, we want to find a team that, um, you know, makes the most sense. Um, and, and beyond me now, you know, AJ, as you're, you know, privy to with a married with three kids, I mean, you got to do what's best for the family too. And uh, that doesn't mean just jump to the first. Uh, uh, you know, team that makes an offer. So, um, but like I said, I, I I don't know when that is because um, this is obviously uh, you know I obviously went through this last year when uh, I was done with the Packers. But um, I, I would assume it would be after the draft, probably before training camp. And um, you know, like I said, when a team reassesses their need and go, hey, we can you know that we can plug this guy in and, and he'll make our team better. Clay, I do remember back in the day. You had the chunky commercial, chunky soup commercial. I believe you had a hair commercial as well because your hair was incredible. Why did you stop doing that? Did you get sick of having to talk about it, or was it because you turned more family based? Because I assume in the locker room, every time a commercial came out, there was a conversation about it. Every time yeah. something happened, there was a little bit. Did you just get tired of doing that and just wanted to move forward? No, nah, you know what? There, there honestly was no rhyme or reason for 
the offers that were thrown my way. Obviously, you know, the hair is, is you know, turned into uh, this larger-than-life, you know, deal that I got going on, and it makes it, it makes me easily recognizable in a game in which, you know, we're wearing helmets and our faces are covered and there's not a lot of advertising. But um, ultimately, I, I mean, I've had, you know, a down year, and I've had, you know, four to five national offers, uh, you know, with, with uh, companies, and I've also had some of my best years, and, you know, you'll have, you'll have one offer come in. So ultimately, uh, I think it's a mix between, um, you know, family time, um, you know, ultimately with, you know, free agency and everything. And, you know, to be completely honest, obviously playing in Green Bay where, you know, it's, it's so marketable and recognizable and, you know, having sustained success for so long, playing with the likes of, you know, obviously AJ and um, Aaron Rodgers and all those guys, it just, you know, you were a household name. And, you know, I think that's kind of changed and it's ultimately moving towards the younger generation. But now that you mentioned, I'm not sure who's, who's kind of sweeping up with these, uh, you know, these, these NFL endorsements anymore. I know Peyton was, you know, he, he, he was ruling, ruling it for some time, but I, I don't know who's, who's, who's taking the cake now. Clay, what was that like? Obviously, you spent a lot of time in Green Bay, and then you go out and go back basically to where you grew up and, and play for the L.A. Rams. I guess, was the transition like you thought, and like how, how different was it going out there? Yeah, well, I mean, that was my first time, uh, you know, being a free agent. So other than, you know, coming out in the draft, uh, I mean, it was completely new for me. Um, but, you know, when, when the Packers let me know that they weren't going to uh, renew my contract and, and that we were going to move in a different direction, um, I told my agent one of the first teams that I wanted to uh, be a part of was, uh, you know, the L.A. Rams. So obviously, coming off the Super Bowl, um, you know, the year before, and um, the, the idea of playing alongside guys like, you know, Aaron Donald, uh, Michael Brockers, Dante Fowler, uh, really appealed to me. And obviously, with what, you know, Sean is been able to do you know with the team and the culture that everybody speaks about so coming home um you know it was everything that you know we kind of imagined as far as you know we i grew up 20 minutes from cal lutheran where we practiced uh each and every day it was just just so familiar and the kids were finally you know in one place for the entirety of a year not traveling back and forth from california to green bay each year or, or any other team for that matter so you know, all that being said, uh, we, we really enjoyed it, you know, playing at the Coliseum where, you know, I went to school at USC, got to play there again, and uh, lots of family members got to come to the game and, and check it out. So I uh, was hoping for at least another year out here, but um, it, it was fun. It was, it was kind of everything I imagined. It, it provided a, a renewed sense of energy, um, you know, being out here and just, just having something new. I would love to talk to you about your USC days. That team you were a part of back then was just Fuck next level. I mean, it was awesome. It was must-see television. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I think whenever you were at the Packers, Kevin Green, right? That, that guy really <laughs> helped your entire career. Is that accurate? And say, I remember, like, they would always do, like, these certain spotlights. They're like, this is Kevin Green from Steelers, and then they would show Clay Matthews and, and AJ. Everybody was like, this guy's the linebacker's coach. He's really done a lot. Was Kevin Green a massive impact on your career? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, absolutely. In fact, I think... I'm going to digress here a little bit, but he, there was a number of guys that he worked with early in my career um, where I want to, want to thank, and AJ, I know you're obviously you know, very well of this, but he taught you know, the fundamentals and technique of the position. And it was, it was, it was little things, you know, his hands inside, uh, you know, taking a, you know, a step back, and he loved to talk about cobra strikes. 
AJ, and it was all about this mm. cobra strike. It's where you stick your face right into, you know, whether it be an offensive tackle or a tight end trying to block you, and you just absolutely stun them. I don't think they can teach that anymore with you know, all, the, all, the, all the brain injuries that are going on. But I, I tell you what, though, he, he, he was very instrumental um, in, in, you know, kind of teaching me the fundamentals and techniques of the game early in my career. And then I think after... 2013, um, he wanted to spend more time with his family, and then I moved on to another coach. But no, definitely those first five years, um, I mean, they were great. You know, he he got us all right each and every week. He was, uh, you know, from a military background, so he uh, he didn't deal with a lot of nonsense, and he got the best out of his players. And I think you saw that from his uh, coaching style, his players, and from the highlight clips. Let's talk about that USC team that you were a part of. That USC team was outrageous. I got a chance to be at the Senior Bowl with. Uh, you, Cushing, I believe Feely was there Drew as well. Casey. Everybody knows about, yeah, Liner. Sanchez. Was that just a dreamland you guys were living out there in Los Angeles? I mean, the stories I have heard about the life of a USC Trojan during that time, was that just an absolute fairy tale life you were living in college, what, 20 minutes away from where you grew up at? Well, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with my story, but I, you know, I walked on there and I joined, you know, my first year we won the national championship with. Uh, beat Oklahoma down there at the Orange Bowl, um, you know, with Reggie and Liner, Lendale, all these guys um, who were household names at the time, and uh, it was it was definitely everything you saw on TV and everything you imagined. I mean, there were celebrities, musicians, actors coming to practice. I mean, Pete does such a go- such a good job of marketing. Uh, Pete Carroll, that is, um, that you know, he he just. I mean, he made it the itch show in L.A. I think the Lakers were rolling at the time. So, you know, we were selling out the Coliseum 92,000 uh, week in and week out. So it was, it was pretty fun to be a part of, especially my senior year. Um, that's, that's when I became a full-time starter. And, you know, obviously that was your senior year as well. That was, you know, with the likes of Cushing, Maoluga, Mayava, Feely, uh, Kyle Moore, just a ton. Of, I, I think we had 12 guys get drafted that year. Um, and it, I mean, it was awesome. We just we had a great group of guys. We were competitive. We competed against one another, and we won ball games. You know, and we had fun doing it. So I think that's why we, you know, we brought the best out in each other and had so much success, and we're able to carry that into the league. Clay, there's a, there's a lot of talk of some vets that want to find a way to get down to Tampa in so-called ring chase with a little guy named Tom Brady, fresh off the heels of his Howard Stern interview that he was he was a lot more open than normal. Have you you've given much thought to a what it may look like to, to strap it up for the Bucks and try to chase another <laughs> ring? Hey, I, I'm not going to lie to you. That, that, that crossed my mind. You know, I thought, <laughs> I, I mean, I think football is a little more difficult to ring chase. I mean, I know, I know, I know where you're, you're going with this, but ultimately, um, I mean, his, his track record says that the Bucks, uh, you know, should be the team to beat uh, in the NFC. So uh, we'll, we'll see if there's any interest. I know um, – um, they've got a stud off, uh, out there rushing off the edge, but you know, like we talked about earlier, we're just sitting tight and hopefully something comes about with a quarterback in the in the likes, or, you know, in the same ballpark as uh, Tom, and we can make another run at this. How does that process go, Clay? Your agent will say, "Hey, here's some teams that are interested," because you're at a whole different stage now. You you said it. You're later in your career. Uh, you're going to find a good situation, a winning situation. And I think you were going to say while you're answering, and you didn't say it, you held back, which is smart, obviously, because you're doing a, a shitty contract, is what you said. But it, it, you were going to say, "How does that process look?" Your agent will be like, "Hey, here are some teams we've got interest from. Here are the pros. Here are the cons of each team." Is that how that whole t- whole thing will go? Is it more of like a field base? Uh, you know, I think it's. 
I think first and foremost, you, the first thing you realize in free agency is all 32, well, I guess 31 teams are intrigued. They're intrigued with you, but that means nothing. You know, the, the reality is what team is, is willing to make an offer? And then once you have an offer on the table or you, you agree to, um, you know, a price you're comfortable with before, you know, before signing on the dotted line, at least for me, you know, I speak with my father who's, uh, you know, obviously played in the, in the league and had, um, you know, some success doing so. I speak with my wife. Uh, people close to me, just to um, you know, see if see if it's the right move. Because um, you know, I would say deep down, I, I know what the right decision is, but I want to get the input of the people closest to me. You know, who are going to be a part of this? I mean, because you know, my wife picks up the slack during the season with the three kids, and uh, you know, she's up in the middle of the night with the kids, taking them to school, and and you know, if, if we were to go to a new city or state, um, you know, with no no friends or anything along the lines, it makes it more difficult for her. And you got to look at the quality of life and, and living and AJ I, you know I know you went to Cincinnati um, you know after uh, Green Bay and I have to think you know a large part of that was to be closer to home growing up in uh, Columbus yeah. right Dublin oh, yeah. somewhere around there yeah they stink don't go to Cincinnati Clay. <laughs> well I, I, I was speaking on behalf of AJ but, okay okay, you know. okay, 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 okay. <laughs> hey last thing for me I, I was thinking of Pete Carroll also Seattle another opportunity maybe reunite with pete but we always talk about pat and i like to talk about college coaches trying to make the transition to the nfl why do you think pete's been able to be successful and so many others have seemed to fail i you know i think pete has this uncanny ability to bring out the best in his players um he did that at sc and he's able to do that you know in the nfl year in and year out it obviously helps when you've got a quarterback like you know russell wilson because you're obviously going to be on the verge of uh you know getting to the Super Bowl every year, and they've shown that they're a perennial playoff team. And, um, you know, they just just one game, one game away from, you know, taking it to the next level. But, um, I mean, he's obviously had some, some good fortune with his draft picks back, you know, when they had the Legion of Boom and everything, hitting on a couple of those mid-rounders. But, you know, I think he's just, uh, you know, he's a coach who, who appreciates the grind and who, um, you know, enjoys – you know, enjoys the game, and he did, you know, there wasn't a day you would catch him in a down mood or where he looked disheveled or distressed. I mean, he always had more energy than players on the team. I think the team, uh, you know, fed off that. So, yeah, I mean, um, uh, I mean, he's had, obviously, I think him and Belichick, uh, speaking of uh, the all-decade team, uh, made that all-decade team, and, and rightfully so. I'm not happy about us not making it, Clay. Yeah, what are we going to do, though? I mean, we just go back and play another 10 years? I think we tweet. <laughs> it could work. <laughs> uh, Clay, I appreciate you so much for joining us, man. I know you don't do a lot of these, so I appreciate it. Good luck. You've been a stud, dude. You've been a lot of fun to watch. I mean, aside from the Pro Bowl thing, you've been a lot of fun to watch, and I appreciate you so much. Good luck everywhere you go. Hey, I appreciate it, Pat. Can I tell one more story before you kick me off here? It was 2009 uh, draft class. We obviously came out at the same time, and this was back when the rookie symposium was, uh, <laughs> you know, what was going on. And there were there were breakout groups, AJ, and uh, mm-hmm. me and uh, uh, Pat just so happened to be in the same group. And I don't remember anybody else from that entire rookie symposium except <laughs> Pat was in the same room. Charlie Batch was our mentor, and uh, Austin Collie. You remember him, uh, oh, yeah. Pat? Oh yeah. Was, uh, you know, BYU player. I, I have to assume he was, uh, uh, assume he's Mormon. But, um, you know, he was talking about his wife and kid, and uh, all I could remember was you and your, uh, 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 you know, your, your personality that, has, that is uh, larger than life. And, 
you know, you continue to make an impact on me. Appreciate well, I, you, Pat. <laughs> hey, I appreciate that. Like, those were such long, boring ass <laughs> days, man. I felt like a, I felt like I, my role there was to hopefully break this monotony up just a little bit. You remember Chris Carter just yell, or not Chris Carter? So who yelled at us? Yeah, I think it was Chris Carter just yelled at us to end that. Do you remember that? I remember somebody being on stage and telling us that his diamonds were fake. That's really all I remember. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, I just remember you uh, on one side of the spectrum and Austin Collie on the other side. And those are the two guys I remember. So I, you're doing a good job staying remembered. Uh, you know, just, just being true to yourself. I think it's admirable. Oh, I appreciate you, Clay. Good luck, man. I hope you go win another Super Bowl. But ladies and gentlemen, legend Clay Matthews. Thank you, man. Clay, Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks, man. Hey, good booking, AJ. Let's go, AJ. AJ, good. AJ Hawk! AJ Hawk! AJ Hawk! AJ Hawk! What a moment, AJ. Good booking out of you. Yep. <laughs> hey, I, I know how to send a text. Hey, when you shower yeah. with guys, when you shower with guys too, you get a little bit different appreciation. He and I won the senior bowl together, no big deal. You want you want a Super Bowl with him, I want a senior bowl. No big deal. I didn't realize you guys came out in the same class until today. Yeah, that's why we ate breakfast together before that pro bowl like everybody's in the same room we're eating it was me him i forget who i think Vinny was sitting there with us there's um i think maybe maybe martellus bennett was there mm. marty b was there we had a great table great conversation like by the way i was an active participant in the conversation jj watt was like i was pretty active participant he laughs hey have a good one he i think he was the first one out gets on the bus and then, go, lo and behold, I go out to punt, and he, son of a bitch, he's just trying to, I'm like, what are we doing? We're literally just breaking bread. We were just breaking bread an hour ago, and now he's trying to ruin my life. As soon as he got on that bus, oh, I'm going to block that motherfucker's yeah, punt, the first one I see. Oh, I saw yeah. him eating that sandwich like he was uh, It would have been hilarious, because I'm sure he, he probably thought it would be hilarious to block a punt <laughs> in the Pro Bowl, especially <laughs> off of you. It would be, by the way. It absolutely would be hilarious. Oh, your reaction to him blocking oh, your you punt? Oh, you son of a, <laughs> I could have, me running behind him. You son of a bitch! <laughs> it would have been awesome. Trying to tell you jump on his back and he carries you into the end zone. <laughs> hey, that rookie symposium, man. It's the worst. Oh, my God. The people who need to hear it don't hear anything that is said. And unfortunately, the people that don't need to hear it have to sit there for three and a half days, locked down. You can't leave the hotel, and you have people are put on stage to yell at you and tell you how terrible and stupid you are. <laughs> don't give your don't give your parents a phone. Don't buy anyone a house. Don't give away all your money, which I agree with some of that part. Yeah, you can't just keep you I can't know. put people on the payroll, but oh my gosh, I they depressed. just try to make you feel like a terrible human. It's bro. I mean, I probably should have been listening. I get arrested a couple years later after that, but I mean, <laughs> there's probably some things I should have been but I felt like I played a pretty valuable role in that entire thing. I, I looked around. I'm pretty good at reading a room. I feel like I'm pretty good at reading a room. And in those breakout sessions, it was us, the Packers, and the Steelers. And poor Charlie Batch was up there trying his absolute best. And I looked around at this room. And it was just a dead room. Charlie was talking to a bunch of dead souls out there. So I would ask a couple questions, you know, just to, to pique a little conversation. And Austin Colley was absolutely terrified and petrified by the questions I was asking. I mean, absolutely. Austin Coley and I, by the way, would go on to become good friends. But at that moment, that was our first weekend together. It was uh, it was an interesting one. It was very well, interesting. They, have they asked you to come speak at the symposium? Oh, oh, yeah. So Yeah, me too. You'd be awesome. You should do it. When I went, I'll let you get to your thing. But when I went, I don't remember the guy's name. The only thing I remember that was good from the symposium that I consumed and everyone enjoyed, it wasn't the breakout session. It was the whole group. And they had a guy come on. I have no idea what team he played for. I think he was like a he was a DB of some sort. 
and a special team guy, and he'd gotten into some trouble. I think he got caught up in some pill game, and he he was taking pills. I don't know if he was selling. I don't know what he was doing. But he told his whole story and how he's come through the other side now and how he was a respectable guy and still in the league doing well. But he was really fun, and like it, it was great. I think you, that like that is your stage. You'd be amazing. I did go speak there, but they hustled me. How? They asked me if I wanted to be a part of a reaching out group. And I was told it was about like connections because at this point I had a pretty large Twitter following. I'd already built a little bit of a business by myself here. I'd already done stand-up comedy, sold out some theaters by myself, sold merch by myself, sponsored a car in the Indianapolis 500 by myself. So I thought it was like they said like oh, reaching out, like making connections and stuff like that. I was like, all right, I'll come talk about building your own business and stuff like that. I thought that's what it was going to be. It was not what I was there for. I was there to speak about reaching out for help when you're an addict. So I would like, yeah, when you're in a, I didn't learn that until 10 minutes before I got on stage, we went through what the the panel was going to be. I was there with Brian Banks, the guy that uh, got falsely accused of rape from USC and ended up in jail. He was the first speaker. Then Warwick Dunn, who was the first documented player to like need a, a, a psychologist or something to take care of his family issues that he was having. He was next to me and then somebody else. And then I was the last person on stage and it was about me going through the program. And I was supposed to talk about reaching out for help when I was an addict. So these guys tell these incredibly sad stories and then it gets to me and uh johnny manzel sitting front row right i mean johnny manzel's right there the whole and i turned it into a obviously a i i turned it into exactly i turned it into a stand-up i mean i'm sure they loved i'm sure those players were so appreciative of of you being up there absolutely and dr brown by the way my first time meeting him uh, the guy that put me in the uh, substance abuse program for 27 months and tested me eight times a month for 27 months. I met him face-to-face for the first time backstage right before going out there. And I told him, like, thanks. You know, like, hey, you're a real pain in my ass, obviously, for 27 months. But obviously, it worked on the other side. I'm on a better side. He goes, oh, I remember our run together or whatever. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And he just walked by. He was, he was a nice guy. And then I got up on that stage. And, man, those draft picks – to listen to Brian Banks' story, which has now been made a movie, and it's it's a wild story about people. Powerful. And Warwick Dunn's like one of the best humans alive. Of all time. Of all time. And then it's me sitting there at the end, and I'm like, uh, like, what did you learn through your process? You know, and I'm like, yeah, to be honest, probably should have partied at home. Like, that's that's what I was like. I was trying. I it sound, you know what it sounds like? It, it sounds like, haven't you had buddies who have gotten a DUI, and they have to go to like the... Uh, like they have to go to some meetings. Oh, you got some counseling sessions, and they have to go sit in basically like at an AA meeting. And some guys talking about they have to go around and tell stories. He's like, "Well, yeah, I was high on meth and took my kid and hung him off a roller coaster, and then rode a zip line out of my house into a pool, and everyone's dead. But hey, I'm back. I'm here now. I'm alive. Like that's what that's what it sounds like. I should have just went full by the grace of God and by the pastor <laughs> and the Lord Himself. The good like the guy that, like the pastor that's blowing coronavirus away. Oh, uh, yeah. By the way, at first he was praying with his oily ass hands it away, and then that didn't work. So then he decided to get his mouth involved and start blowing that shit. That guy was interesting. But yeah, that was a wild scene. And I have been complimented by people in that draft class as being somebody that they appreciated during that because I couldn't imagine being forced to listen to something like that ever again. That rookie symposium was terrible, man. It was I should have listened, but I, it was terrible. By I wonder way, if they still lock them down. Did they lock you down? I remember we couldn't. Oh, yeah. You couldn't leave the premises of the hotel. Curfew. 
Yeah. Your hotel. Like I had people. I think ours was in San Diego when I went, or somewhere in California. And I, I, I think I had family that I was trying to like have dinner with after we had, we got done with 19 hours of meetings. And they're like, no, you can't leave. No, what? Yeah, we're checking your room. I'm like, like wait, I thought I, I thought we're professionals now. This isn't. No, no. What are we doing? No, no. You, you don't have any respect for your elders either. That's what Chris Carter told well, you. Me. You want to know what? Oh, Chris Carter. I think that's an annual thing he does. Is yell at the symposium. I, I think he was there when I was. Mar- well, he got in trouble because he said he got to have a fall, fall guy. guy. He, he, he yeah. changed his routine from yelling at people to trying to help out. In the way he worded it, wasn't exactly uh, what people wanted to hear. By the way, pretty valid piece of advice. But I uh, can't be saying that as a representative of the NFL. The I should have listened. I mean, I bought my parents. I think at this point, two houses. I uh, bought my brother a house, got them some cars, uh, took care of all my family. That's what you're supposed to do. Pat. It's all right. You're a generous guy. Well, that's why I want to raise my hand and be like, uh, so what, everybody should just fucking eat shit now? Like, <laughs> should I not get my family out of debt? Like, is that not the right move, sir? Well, you got to make sure you take care of your P's and Q's, you know? I'm like, yeah. Well, how about my moms and dads? How about, <laughs> how about we take care of that? Marcellus Wiley was up there talking about how he shouldn't own a gun. He told this entire story about how he had a gun in his car and it made him act different because he knew that the gun was there. And one day he was changing so much, he actually went over to Niagara Falls because he was in Buffalo and he took that gun and he got out of his car. He looked at it one last time and said, no more will you be affecting how I feel mentally. And he threw it in Niagara Falls. I was like, oh, it sounds like you killed a guy. Powerful <laughs> story. He got- how about you can, but it, tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I can own a gun without carrying it in my car, right? Law says that is correct. Okay. Well, Marcellus, I think, was just telling people, you know, it ain't about that life anymore. Let's move forward. Yeah, I, it's a good message he's sending, but about unfortunately. Well, he got questioned, though. He got questioned by the crowd. Oh. I, there was people that were like. like That's it, another tough crowd to speak to because if they oh. think, it, like, the guys will come at you hard. Well, and who's more gangster than who, right? Because if one guy <laughs> asks, asks a question about owning his gun, then the person that's on this side that, you know, he wants everybody to know he is more gangster than that person. Now he's got a question, and Marcellus has got to answer now all these questions to these guys that are playing on, I think, going and uh, potentially shooting people up. It was an interesting scene. Demory Smith, that was his first ever speech as um, – NFLPA president was our symposium. I, I wish I would ask Clay Matthews about that. There was a lot of – it's a shame Clay didn't remember it. It was actually pretty entertaining now that I hindsight it. Yeah, it, it does – we're making it sound a lot better than it actually was when in reality uh, there just, was like three or four minutes a day that are fun to talk about now, but the other 15 hours were brutal. Shit, shit. I don't. They've asked me to come back and be a part of some of those panels or speak, and now that – especially now that you're laying out what you did and what other people said – what the hell would my message be? Like, I don't have any story to tell. How come they're not asking me to speak to these kids? You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you. Or do they do they try to like get players like with like the room checks and stuff like that and the curfew? Are they trying to like set guys up to like get them in trouble? No, no. I think I think why they do it is because they it would be re- it would be a real bad look for the NFL if guys got in, in trouble, trouble while they're at the rookie symposium. Like they're sneak out, they're caught at some bar, something happens. Like that's just a really really bad look for the league. Could you imagine that rookie symposium meeting the morning after a couple guys would get arrested at a local bar or whatever? That would be awesome. It would oh, be awesome. Schefter, Rappaport, they would be all over it. According to my sources, Austin <laughs> Coley and Pat McAfee got arrested at a bar at the symposium hours after learning about why they shouldn't be at a bar at the rookie <laughs> symposium. That would be awesome. Let's check in with I, our guy, Diggs. Hey. Diggs, how Tony. you doing? We, we can hear you there. Okay. Hey, pal. How many miles in are you? 5.5. 5. 
I see we moved the clock, the timer. Yeah, it um was fu- there. It is. Oh, oh. There you go. it was too far away on the other couch. No, but it's not on the. Sh- That's a, it. Was a Zito production with that you're, awesome. You're charger. basically done, man. You're almost there. Congrats, Thanks, AJ. Twenty-two hours and twenty-five minutes left. Uh, <laughs> how how far along are we on that treadmill? Five point five miles. Let's go! Hey, Let's go! Get some Still incline good. going there, Diggs. No, no, no. He, he yeah. You want a workout, don't you? You could walk for twenty-four hours straight if you're walking on flat ground. You're just not even a workout. <laughs> are you next age? What are you? Ninety-five years old. <laughs> Are you pistol? Are you pistol? And you think walking eighteen holes is your exercise for the day? Uh, Thousand percent, yes. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, <laughs> would, it is a little bit. You're right. Hey, by the way, I want to let everybody know that today's show is brought to you by Raycon. Yeah! Um, we love what we you do, and we don't want you to change. Our collective success depends on you staying true to your. Oh, that's what they're telling me to say. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> In parentheses, <laughs> relate to yourself somehow. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, these E25 true wireless earbuds brought to you by Raycon are the best in-ear wireless, no stem having earbuds in the history of earbuds. Easily. They cost half the price and still have the exact same sound quality. Now, how is that possible, you say? Well, the reason why it's possible is because a guy named Ray J, ever heard of him? He created these bad boys. And Ray J said, you know, I've been in a situation in the past where maybe somebody else made a lot of money off of my work. You know? (laughs) Maybe somebody else made a lot of money off of my work. I want to be a guy that absolutely is known for taking care of people because that is what my legacy is. So he created Raycon with that idea in mind. And we all know celebrities like Cardi B. Ever heard of her? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. J.R. Smith, ever heard of him? Swish! How about Snoop D-A-Double-G? He's had a lot of headphones on. He says the Raycon E25 wireless earbuds are his absolute favorite, and they're mine as well. Granted, we can't wear them during the show because we're connected to something that doesn't have Bluetooth capabilities, but as soon as I get out of here and I'm going to work out, you know what I'm putting on? E25 Raycon earbuds. Yeah. 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 And right now, if you go to buyraycon.com forward slash sports talk, you'll get 15% off your order. That is buyraycon.com forward slash sports talk for 15% off your order. Every day, E25 earbuds are the best model yet with six hours of playtime on this thing. Six hours of play. Seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design. It gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. It also comes in new, fun colors. And go to buyraycon.com forward slash sports talk for 15% off your order. These things are legit. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They go, it's weird how they stay in your ear. Because I always thought the AirPods, right, that little dangling thing is the reason why it stays in your ear. It turns out Raycon has figured out a way to make things stick in your ear, and they stay in your ear, and it looks beautiful while you're doing it. Yeah, a lot better. They're better than AirPods. AirPods don't stay in my ears. I may have weird Me ear too. canals, but I, especially if you're trying to work out or do something, they, AirPods don't even come close to staying in my ears. They slip out or pop out of my ear. I got weird ears, too. I can't do the in-ear stuff on a regular basis. The AirPods were the first ones that would stay in a little bit longer. These bad boys, though, locked and loaded in there with the same bass and the sound as the expensive brands, but at half the price. Very true, and I, and I like it as part of the read. You talking about Ray J taking control of his life, and he's the he's leading this. He's making the money from that. So, yeah, I, I think it's a great thing he's doing here. Well, he takes care of other people. 
He set yeah. one particular family up for a billion dollar operation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Shout out Ray J. H-A-H-A. Now he's doing it with Raycon. He's setting up everybody else to enjoy their audio experience with the E25. Buy Raycon.com forward slash sports talk for 15% off your order. I would recommend these. AJ would recommend these, as would all the boys. And we're, we have a sponsor, so that's good news. It's always good news. Please take care of the company that chose to invest in this stupid show. <laughs> that would be very, very nice of you. Uh, big thanks to Clay Matthews for joining us. AJ Hawk, incredible booking. And also, good luck to our friend Diggs, who's still out there marching along. Hey, Pat, let's set it in stone before we head off the show. Are we going to do a Thursday night round one? We're going to do a live draft show, I think. <sighs> uh, well, we, well, the McAfee and Hawk for that Thursday will just move to draft night. Yeah, what time's draft night? So we'll, we should start Eight. probably... 20 or 30 minutes before the actual first pick happens. And I think we should have some other first-rounders on the show before the draft kicks off to hear what they were potentially thinking like yourself going into the draft, your mindset. We'll find some other first-round picks who got nothing else going on mm-hmm. and hopefully be able to give them a call. So it'll be prime McAfee and Hawk, prime time Ooh. sports talk. First night of the year, prime time. Prime time. I watched uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire primetime last night. Oh, how was it? Who's the host? Uh, Jimmy Kimmel's the host. And for the first 10 questions, up to 32,000 or whatever, they have a friend with them. Oh, come on. Eric Stone Street brought one of the writers of uh, uh, Modern Modern Family. Family. He was sitting back there. Not my who wants to. Stone Street won 125 grand. I didn't see what the the next person was, Will Forte. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't see how he did. He brought his dad with him. They do it all remotely? Uh, no, they're they're sitting across from each other, but there's no audience, and their friend is sitting like seven feet behind them, and there's a monitor where they can see each other and say yes. After the first ten questions or whatever, you can either get rid of the fifty fifty and keep your friend, or get rid of your friend and keep the fifty fifty. Mm. It was pretty good. Look. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the show. I watched a little bit. Stone Street was much different than I thought he was going to be. Yeah, he's a lot different than uh, his. What character. do you mean? He's sure. a beast. What do you mean? I saw him once. He seemed to be a bit dramatic. Yeah, I saw him once on uh, Rich Eisen before you were going on. Yeah. And he was a complete stooge, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> Wait, he was dramatic on the show you watched last night? It was just, I did not. I. He's an actor. That's what they're performing, right? Yeah, that's what I thought, you know. I'm going to have to go back and watch this. I like Eric Stone Street, uh, Modern Family. I like his support for the Kansas City Chiefs. I, I like everything yeah, about it. seen him on game day. But I did not. He's been on game day? Oh, yeah. He's been a guest picker, celebrity. You're on game day, Pat. You didn't see him? For Northwestern. I'm only on a couple of minutes. The, um, by the way, will I be on that next year? That's a great question. Yeah. That's a real question. I think so. I think you'll be there. I think you're going to have even uh, an expanded role from what you had this year. That's what you would think, right? Yeah, I think for sure it's going to happen. And That's if, what you would think. If Kirk and Fowler are going to Monday Night Football, I mean – Herb Street well, would never leave college. He's football. staying. Yeah. yeah, he's staying college still, though. Even if he go takes Monday night, he's still going to do it. Yeah, you know, but- there was something that came out that the college game day, which, by the way, I believe best show on television. I watched it every week at the Colts facility. It's just electric. It's WWE meets football. It's a celebration of football. From what I was told, the ratings were like this, and then one particular day, it just started doing this. You know what I mean? Yodely, 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 yodely. <laughs> and I don't know what date that was, but I saw it was all over Twitter there for a bit. Shout out Bob Barker, right? Uh, yeah, yep, shout out Presser mm-hmm. and Drew Carey. You know, Cleveland Rocks, dude. Hmm. This show's over. Hit it.
Look good, feel good. Feel good, play good. Play good, pay good, pay good, live good, live good, die good. We're being joined now by a man who is a two-time, two-time Super Bowl champion. I seen him on the television the other day. He didn't win that Super Bowl. Could have been a three-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, a guy who is always electric on this show, Mr. Ike Taylor. Yeah! Yeah! Oh, boy, Ike! Hey, P-Mac, but that's how you my intro, though, P-Mac. You going to say I saw him on TV, but he didn't win the Super Bowl? I had <laughs> Ike. I, I, as Because in my head, you know, none of these intros are prepared. I'm just kind of walking through things. And then a after the two-time Super Bowl champion, when I thought of Super Bowl, I was like, literally just watched him play football the other day. He was in a Super Bowl. Didn't win that one, but he still won two Super Bowl. I think it was still, you know, it's, it's I blame the – it's my fault. Honestly, it's my fault. No, I'll tell you what, Aaron Rodgers, uh, if, he was a, if he was a defensive back, and for the most part, a lot of our guys in that secondary – we was in good position, and Aaron Rodgers, he was just he was threading that needle, man. Like he he was on we, we was coming back, P Mac. We was coming back on the sideline, like just shrugging our shoulders at each other, like, "Hey, Coach Bowl, what else we can do?" He was like, "Nothing." <laughs> he was like, "That boy on fire, that boy on fire right now." Ain't nothing y'all can do. Like y'all in good position, he he just threading the needle. There are some times, I would assume, where that is the case. How many games in the NFL did that happen? Not many, huh? Nah, nah. You, you can, in my career, I can probably say about three or four times. It's just, it's just you catch a quarterback like Tom Brady one time. He was in the Matrix. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers went in the Matrix on us. Peyton Manning went in the Matrix on us. Even a young Cam Newton in preseason. His rookie year, we saw he was going to be good. He went in the matrix, matrix harness. So, <laughs> at what yeah. point? At what point do you realize you're in the matrix? By the way, is that early in the game, or is it like not until a That's, quarter? They they, they they make about four or five throws, and you know defenders are and linebackers they in the windows and they they covering tight like tight coverage, and they still threading that needle. You like you know what? It's going to be one of these games, bro. Which <laughs> makes you. Which make you step your game up is just like, man, ain't nothing, ain't nothing I can do. That ball to Greg Jennings from Aaron Rodgers in that Super Bowl, where Ryan Clark just talked about it on um, on Get Up this morning, about how he had this entire read on him. He knew whenever the lineup was this, we're quarter, quarter, half, or whatever. Oh, we, we saw we saw trips, trips to our right. So that was trips left by the offense. He locked me on the tight end because he saw it was in a cover two looking shell, but I was playing zero coverage on the back end. We knew that Greg Jennings was going to be on James Ferrier. So he was like, you know what? If I can get there in time enough, I can go and at least get this pick and knock the ball out of, out of Greg Jennings. I'm sorry. Greg Jennings, the receiver. But like I say, man, AR, we call him AR-12. AR-12, he was <laughs> – he shot. <laughs> he shot. He hit. <laughs> hey, it was uh, it was fun. That was a fun game to watch, though. I mean, that was Visor Ben Roethlisberger. He was throwing the ball to anybody. He was young Jameis. He was just throwing the ball up to anybody. Aggressive, getting after it. I mean, that was an awesome game to watch. I forgot how good of a game it was. To be honest with you, no, it was P Mac. It, it, it was a good game. Like that was later on, later on in my career, and I think we've been to three Super Bowls in like five years. So. I wasn't yawning, but I was telling myself, like, man, we supposed to come in every two years, so this I, I, I need to be here. So we done did two already, then we messed around and, and got to our third one. And, you know, I'm still young. I'm like, 
man, this is life. And my homeboys coming back to me in the offseason who played on other teams, they was like, man, I'm glad y'all lost. I'm getting tired of y'all coming back to these offseason <laughs> workouts talking about how much fun y'all have and all these autographs, kindness, people giving y'all deals. He was like, bro, I'm glad y'all lost. <laughs> uh, the um, My rookie year I played in the Super Bowl, we we ain't never get back to it. I mean, we, we ain't never get back to it. A couple years later, we were almost completely defeated. That's why it's so impressive to get to multiple Super Bowls. It is not an easy task. That's why it is not easy. Nah, you ain't lying, P-Mac, put you there. That's the last time Aaron Rodgers got to a Super Bowl, bro. Yeah. That was 2010. The yeah. last time Drew Brees got to a Super Bowl was when? 2009. Bro, it, it, like you said, it ain't easy. It is not easy. It ain't easy, man. We talking about 10 years later, 11 years later, with two Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Ain't nothing easy about There is no, oh, we going to get back. It's not guaranteed. Why do you think the Patriots were able to debunk every single stat and trend and everything like now granted you guys did there for a bit too the Steelers let's not get crazy that Steelers team that you guys had early Ben years and stuff like that was incredible to watch and a lot of success but for 20 years basically the better half of 20 years the Patriots were just able to get back to the Super Bowl get back to the greatness and do you think that is Bill Belichick led do you think they'll still be able to do that or has this just been something that will never happen again oh man I look at I look at Bill Belichick how I look at Nick Saban in college like great, great recruiter them, them two nah they they just they got a system and they don't deter from that system bro like Nick Saban is defense run the ball and you can just look at the quarterbacks that come out of Alabama they just be okay like the quarterbacks come out of Alabama I don't care who you say how athletic when you draft from Alabama you driving on defense you draft offensive linemen good run game running backs now if you get a quarterback we'll, we, it's to be determined with Tua is what I won't say. I, I'm just going off of recent history. Playing quarterback at Alabama, when you get into the league, just like playing quarterback at USC, when you get into the league, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. Is it because of how talented the people are around them down there? Is that the case? Man, you 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 know, you know, this generation of P Mac, they they talking about stars, five star, three star. It ain't nothing but star. It's it's five. <laughs> Your goddamn four star Alabama <laughs> can be started anywhere in the world. You know what I'm saying? So it's all it's, all you're doing is looking at the sky. You're looking at stars. That's all you're doing. You in Hollywood. You, you just walking down the street looking at stars. When you go to Alabama and some of these big top-notch schools in Clemson, you just looking at stars, man. It is real. It is interesting because if you have the players in college you are going to win games. That's just how it is. And there's the teams that have them, right? That's why everybody says it's different down here. The SEC has a great tradition of just getting all the great players. Now, Ohio State, obviously, incredible factory. The way they operate, the success they had, that quarterback next year might be the number one pick next year, by the way. A lot of people are saying, oh, Trevor Lawrence, I still believe he's six foot five and a stud, but that quarterback they have is incredible. The thing with Tua, though, is he was the first quarterback at Alabama where I remember going like, damn, they got a guy that can throw the ball. I never thought, now granted, this is no knock on A.J. McCarron or Jalen Hurts or any of the quarterbacks of the past. Uh, Greg McElroy. Uh, any of them, right? This is no knock on them, but they never had to, right? It was always like, hey, we can run and win this thing, and even if they throw it, it's always like the guys were wide open or whatever. Tua was able to put it on the absolute money whenever he was throwing a rock. He used to be able to thread the needle, as you say. He used to get into the matrix. But I always wondered, if you're getting four surgeries with that offensive line in front of you and the best talent, 
What is going to happen when he gets to the NFL? I think he's talented enough, but what will happen when he doesn't have all those stars around him to protect him in the NFL? You can fall, and if you're going top early, that means that team stinks. There's a reason you're going there. It could be a whole new world for Tua, or on the flip side, he could light it up. I have no idea. They got Tua got at least three guys that's going first round. He got two receivers that might go first round. One for sure going first. Yeah, he's really One for sure going first. Ruggs might go first if somebody reached for him. Then you got an offense. You got an offensive lineman. He's gonna go first, and you hit it on the head because, as as a GM as I want to be, that's what I say. If you can't be healthy in college, how do I expect for you to be healthy with training camp, OTAs, mini mini camp, and the regular season? So we're talking about twenty two games, not including if we get to the playoffs. You couldn't stay healthy for 11 to 12 games in college. So now all of a sudden, I expect you to be healthy with a longer season. That's my only question mark about tour. That's my only question mark about tour. He knows it too, by the way. He put out a hype video last night that was awesome. I mean, he put out a video, he tweeted a video out last night like, who is Tua? If you want Tua, come and get him, basically. He was down in Nashville and that tornado happened. I think his rental car got slaughtered. I mean, he, this kid has been through it now. That hip surgery, he says he's all the way back. The drills look incredible. But if you're a GM and you draft him, hi. You're riding with him. That's like pace with Mitchell Trubisky. You're riding with this guy. You're riding with your scouting. You're riding with, hey, I think this guy's going to be my franchise quarterback. And if he gets hurt, everybody's going to be like, how did you not know that he was going to get hurt? You know what I mean? But right. on the flip side, he is a freakishly talented thrower of the ball. And it feels like in the offense we have, if you have a guy that can sling it, you can be successful. I, I just don't know who's going to get – I have no idea who's going to – it's alleged that Miami's interested in Air Bear more so than Tua, but that could be all smoke and mirrors around draft time. Everybody starts lying around this time. I mean, I have no idea how it's going to play out for the kid. Man, I hope it plays out well for Tua, you know, just for Tua's sake, because I like watching them in college. Like, it's hard – you, I just like watching lefty quarterbacks because they they just a little bit different, you know. So you got to change your whole game plan up as a defensive coordinator and as an OC because everything is lefty. And as a receiver, man, you know the ball is spinning a little bit different. Just ask Jerry Rice when he went from Joe to uh, Steve Young from that left-handed quarter quarterback. But at the same time, bro, it's just like the the yeah. MVP of tailgating, Jerry Rice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he didn't do well with Steve. Whenever Steve was throwing lefty, I didn't know that. Did that really affect him? Is that something he said before? No, no. I don't, I'm just saying the ball spins different. Oh, yeah. The ball just spins different. It just comes out different. The laces look different from a righty to a lefty. And it turns it's over different. the other way. Correct, correct. You know what I'm saying? So it's just with Tua. I like. I just like seeing left-handed quarterbacks. Like, I'm a Steve Young, a Vic, a Tua. I'm a left-handed guy. I just like seeing lefties because they're a little bit different. You don't see them too often. But just getting back to Tua, like, man, he has some studs. The man, the man, the man, the man has some studs on offense. You talking about two receivers that that can possibly go in the first round? I, I get what you're saying, as far as like athletic talent, and he's having these hunt videos, but ain't nobody chasing him. <laughs> no, ain't no, ain't no, ain't no, ain't no linebacker coming for him to blitz, and no defensive lineman gonna put no 350 pounds on him. It's a little bit different, you know, when you got some 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 dancing bears, as they call the defensive lineman, who good. A dancing bear coming down your throat. It's a little bit different when you got linebackers nicknamed Maniacs coming coming in your face. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, Tua throwing the ball. I like Tua. Um, I just like his presence. I think he's just a natural, a natural, a natural leader. I think everything True. he does from 
playing the instruments to sing, and I think all of that is just pure because that's their culture. He's just a pure, uh, God-fearing, good-hearted dude. It's just getting back to what we were talking about before, P-Mac, it's them injuries, bro. That's the only thing that scared me, dog. I, I've been questioning it, too, a lot. I, I mean, I've been... I don't know. Do you? Let's move forward. I want to ask you about potential Joe Burrow, Cincinnati Bengal virtual draft. How much easier would it be? And I'm not saying Joe Burrow is going to do this. <laughs> I am not saying it. But it's much easier to say, I don't want to go to a team whenever you, you can do it via text or FaceTime, isn't it? And as opposed to on the draft stage. Could you imagine if Joe Burrow via a Zoom or a FaceTime says, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm not going to Cincinnati. I hope I hope we do to bring some entertainment to the draft. For real. <laughs> I hope we be like, man, I don't want to go though. <laughs> I hope we try to pick where we want to go. It's not like this is going to be the first time. Just as John Elway, as Eli Manning. So it's not like it's the first time this thing was to happen on on going on not wanting to go to a certain certain franchise or a certain spot at a particular time. But Joe Cool, I call him Joe Cool, man. Joe Cool is like, it don't even matter. Like, Joe Cool, again, he's just one of the boys. You know, when you got a guy who's in college smoking cigars, like, it took me it took me a long time to figure out how to smoke a cigar, man. The boy, <laughs> the boy lit a cigar, and that and that picture became viral, P-Mac. That's good photo, by the way. He with his leg crossed, the what? whole thing. I mean, that goes immediately upon uh, the office, the bedroom, the everything. That photo is going everywhere in the house, if I have that. That's, that's, that's a forever photo. I don't care what sport you like. I don't care who your favorite artist is. That picture got to be up on everybody's wall. I agree. I agree. <laughs> hey, last question before we get to a hard out here. Uh, yes, sir. They just showed another highlight of Troy Paul Malu on ESPN. Uh, you said on this show that he probably had God telling him what was happening. Would you like to back up that and say it even more after I watch these highlights of him? And I'm like, damn, that dude did have God telling him what was happening. That yeah, guy that was. Dude, that, that dude, that dude was, that dude was, that dude was created in the biblical days. He was just born in our generation. <laughs> Drop the mic! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ike, you're the absolute best, man. I appreciate you, bro. Thanks for the invite, P. Mac. How's that planking thing going against James Harrison? I saw him had a dog lick his face and a kid on his man, back. It, that's another dude, a little bit different. <laughs> he, 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 he was, he was created in a caveman era. <laughs> Hey, he's a monster. Those those videos he puts out of him working out is just next. I mean, it is just unbelievable that he and I are the same species. It doesn't make any sense to me. I know, right? You, you should have saw a locker room with Troy, him, Joey Porter, James, Ferrier, Larry Foote, Chris Hope, Tyrone Carter. If you if you if you would have been in that locker room, you talking about. You talking about we would have been, we would have been billionaires off of social media. <laughs> billionaires, man. Those boys used to clap. Them boys, no, don't get it twisted. Like Troy, 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 be clowning, please. It's just he, he got a, he's a, he got a warm up to you. And that warm up might take eight years. <laughs> and I don't know too many people who will be around for eight years. But yeah, man, that locker room was something else, P Mac. Hey, Casey Hampton was. I might have to send it to a break, but I want you to stick around. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's just power through it. Uh, we'll continue after the radio break on YouTube.com forward slash the Pat McAfee show. Um, Casey Hampton, 
was also in that locker room. One, that was one of my favorite humans I've ever seen. He showed up too heavy one time, and he he, he basically. I forget how this, he showed up too big or something like that. And the conversation revolving around the Pittsburgh media was like, it's Casey Hampton. Like, that's that's what Casey Hampton, I think he showed up 50 pounds overweight, 40 pounds overweight or something like that at one point. Man, Hamp, Big Hamp was probably one of the only biggest players I know who can do a real live split at 400. 400 pounds that guy weighed at one point? Oh, yeah. I'm exaggerating. <laughs> no, <laughs> he might have though. He uh, we no, got he, he was he was number he was number one. If he if he was 400, he would have been out of the league. He was he was probably like he was like 399. <laughs> he was so impressive to watch though. He was oh, yeah. that dancing bear thing you referred to. Those big now granted, let's go back to that conversation with Tua because I did have this thought. Okay. He played in the SEC, which everybody's like, it's the greatest It's the greatest conference in college football. I, top to bottom, the most athletes, I 100% agree. And after watching college football a little bit more in-depthly this year as opposed to years past, I completely get it. With the, and it, now, obviously, Clemson got a lot of SEC talent over there. And some, but that's how they describe it, by the way. They, they got SEC talent. Is that something that Tua can rely on? Like, hey, you know what? I played in the SEC. It was a great conference. Is it any comparison to the NFL? No. I don't think so either. I, I don't know how – I try to explain it to people, and I sound – everybody tells me I'm a stooge, but it's a d- different animal with these grown-ass men that can run four fours at, like, 280. It just makes no sense. It's, it's, it's that pressure, bro. Like, it's, 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 it's a different kind – it's a different kind of pressure when you get to the league because there is no old five-star recruits. There is no – this booster wants you to play – there is no scholarship like, like you said, you got grown men trying to feed their family, dog. So when you got grown men trying to put food on the table, you know, that the only rules is on the field. And really, there's really no rules other, other than when that whistle blows. It's organized violence, man. It's organized violence. And that quarterback position is a tough position. And I see why they get paid so much because your great quarterbacks now throw the ball, them Aaron Rodgers, them Drew Brees, they thread the needle pretty often. Pretty Not not when somebody's wide open. Not when I got an A1 receiver. Like, you're a good quarterback, make receivers. Like, Tom Brady made Wes Walker. Tom Brady made Julian Edelman. Like, Tom, like, you when, when you become elite in that status, you got to thread the needle often. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if he's been threading the needle uh, guys, so that's why whenever you, whenever I said he was putting it in place, was you gave a look. You're like, ah, sometimes he might have, but there, there's yeah, yeah, threading that needle. You gotta do that, and you know better than anybody because you've been playing for a while. You've been in the league for a while. Hey man, that quarterback man, he got to thread. It. Oh, he's just gonna be average. He's gonna be average to below average. Hey, he can't thread that needle. A miss by that much is a pick. <laughs> like that's is a pick. That's a big deal. Matter of fact, you can close the gap even more. Let's. Let's give it twelve inches. You twelve inches is a pick. If you miss by twelve inches, somebody picking that ball off nine times out of ten. You know how hard it is to throw the ball on a rope, a tight rope, every play. I know how long twelve inches is too. You know. <laughs> so I can't do it. I can't. I can't even. I can't even go there. I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) two-time Super Bowl champion, Ike Taylor. We appreciate that. Hey, Hey, I appreciate you, man. All right, thanks, bro. Y'all boys be good. Stay safe. You too. Where are you at? Florida? I'm in my...
Hi, I'm in Orlando. Orlando. All right. Stay safe down there, will you? We appreciate the hell out of you, Mike. All right. Thanks, bro. Appreciate you guys listening. Um, by the way, talk to a doctor today, a Rhodes Scholar today. Talk to a guy that doesn't do interviews today. And if this stuff is true about Chris Johnson, now granted, remember, these are just accusations. He is innocent until proven guilty. That is a friend of the show. If these things about Chris Johnson are true, though, we might have the most diverse show in the history of shows. Chris Johnson, Rhodes Scholar, rich old white people, guy that runs 100 miles in a day, and Tone Diggs, a man who is creeping towards the money bag on a treadmill. Have the greatest weekend of all time. For the circumstances, obviously. We're getting through this. Remember to use hashtag this is where I'm at, Pat, and tweet pictures of your setup. Zito scrolls through there and sends out photos. We like to see where everybody is at and what they're doing. Um, damn. What a world we're in. You're the best. Ty Schmidt, please play some independent music.